WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 277. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 3121 in the Marriott Hotel in downtown Detroit, Michigan. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a new ejectable floating black box to be installed on long range Airbus aircraft, a bizjet dead stick landing, and more news your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales episode, you're full of hot air. <laughs> so please get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 277 is ready for pushback. I'm not really sure that that's what Nick entitled his plane tales, but I, was, I wasn't looking at it. It was pretty close. <laughs> close enough for government. But. Okay. Well, hey, uh, I'm uh, Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, and joining me from Charlotte, North Carolina, is the beautiful... Doctor? 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 And she's a physiatrist, and she's a marathon runner, she's a IPA connoisseur, and of course, the Miss World 2017 winner, (laughs) Dr. Steph. I like to think of that as a uh, honorary title. (laughs) Okay. Like an honorary doctorate, that was was honorary, you know. Is there even really such a thing as the Miss World 2017? I guess there probably is. You know, I, I have no idea. There's all kinds of different pageants, I'm sure. But, yeah. hey, I'm happy to accept the title. And, um, you know, I'll wear that crown for a year for however long the rain is. But, Excellent. no, great to be back for uh, episode 277. Looking forward to chatting with all of you guys as usual. It's going to be a great show. Awesome. We're glad you're here, Steph. And jo- also joining us from across the pond, an Airbus captain. Flying the wide body 330 340 series, professional photographer, and just all around great guy, Captain Nick Anderson. What a lovely intro, Jeff, and thank you very much indeed. Delight to be back on the show, as always. Really looking forward to a great evening, and it has nothing to do with the uh, 750 milliliters of Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> I have consumed already. And, uh, little honeydew to add a topper well nick has told me that he always enjoys my company much more after he's been drinking heavily not sure what that means but uh thank you uh and also joining us from an undisclosed location i think well i forgot already dulles uh airport in um i guess virginia near the district of columbia we have A former regional jet pilot, and now Acme mainline pilot extraordinaire and soon-to-be captain, Captain Dana. Good evening once again. Great to be back once again with the APG uh, podcast and community. Looking forward to, as everybody else has mentioned, a fantastic show. Have uh, 
We have a special guest this evening. Uh, Captain sitting next to me, Captain Wren. Oh, wait a minute. We have some special music for Captain Wren. Okay, well, then I'll stop. Uh, Anyways, looking forward to a fantastic evening. This is special music for Captain Wren, uh, also a captain for a major, major legacy carrier. And hello, sir. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we'll wait. We'll wait and see Don't if you'll so still much. feel the same way in uh, in, in about an hour. Give it about or so. two hours. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sounds okay. Good. Uh, so hey, he's, I'm looking. He's a little shy. Game I'm looking. Uh, well, you know what? I'm sure that he'll have something to say <laughs> at some point. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, great to have everybody together again this week. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, uh, first of all, we'd like to uh, put out our apologies uh, for wasting your time uh, for another probably two and a half, three hours this week. But uh, I, uh, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're listening. And uh, uh, let's catch up. Uh, what's what's been happening, folks? Anything interesting happening in uh, your lives since we recorded last Thursday? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone's got a little bit of something. All right. Yeah. Well, who wants to who wants to go first? Ladies first. Okay, Miss Steph. All right. All right. Well, I mean, it was a I had a very nice weekend. Um, all of my family was in town, so I'm here in the Charlotte area of North South Carolina, as I think everyone knows at this point. But none of my family lives here. Um, so all of my siblings came in from Salt Lake City. My grandfather came up from Florida, and it was kind of nice to get everyone together and just hang out and enjoy. Um, we did have a tangentially aviation-related event. Um, both of my brothers and one of my brother's girlfriends, um, I asked them if they wanted to go skydiving, and they all said yes. So we we got them signed up to do a tandem jump on Sunday morning. That was a lot of fun. Um, the, we have so the videos. Convince them to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> it didn't take much convincing, oh. so I don't know what that says about the state of my family. But yeah, I just fly those airplanes. Yeah. I've seen them. Yeah, I've seen those airplanes. I jump out of those airplanes too. You See? do? Oh, another crazy no, person. Excellent. I've seen them. I would jump out of oh. them. Ah. I've not been in one. If you, yeah, after after being in one, yes, after exactly. After being in one, I'd probably have to jump because don't know if it's going to make it back down. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 duct tape may not last after the jump back to the ground. Is that what you're referring to on a jump plane? Yeah, they have you know gorilla tape because unfortunately they don't have enough money to buy the speed tape that the most you know, everyone else. Yes, has. yes. Speed tape is your friend. Well, my favorite was one of the first. Uh, uh, planes that I ever jumped out of was an old, old Cessna 182. And we took off and we, <laughs> I was doing a tandem jump and I don't know, we were just circling around the airport, gaining altitude. And in one of the turns, a uh, screwdriver, which had been perched above the door, fell off <laughs> and landed on the floor. So why do you have a screwdriver in here? And they said, man, don't worry about it. So yeah, don't yes. worry about it. <laughs> Does everybody know what a tandem jump is? It uh, let is. me guess. It's a jump where you're riding a tandem. You got it. Bicycle? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Ding. You got it. 
So for There's those who may not know, it's not actually anything to do with bicycles, but the way the story was built up, though, I thought that we were going to have maybe an engagement or something, a tandem jump with an engagement, because it was just like, you know, his your brother and his girlfriend and all the family was there. So the buildup was right there. And then it just jumped up. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that was so Ren, this is kind of basically the show. We, we really, really build it up and then it's just a huge letdown. <laughs> so get used to it. But no, I, I mean, in, in all seriousness, it. it was, it was nice to have the family all together. Um, you know, always a challenge to get your 91 year old grandfather to fly, you know, even just a couple of hours from point A to point B. So some logistics involved with that, but it all turned out quite well. So very pleased that the whole weekend went smoothly. So that's awesome. and nice to see everyone. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Captain Nick, uh, anything yes, interesting happening in your life since our last recorded episode last Thursday? Well, I think we recorded the last show before I went to New York, which was a lovely trip. Yeah. Uh, great trip in, except that JFK had the temerity to uh, insist I landed on their shortest effing runway, um, which is fine if you're light and you're in a, in a puddle jumper. But, you know, I don't mean to suggest that 34600 is an absolutely enormous airplane, but it's not It's small. a big airplane. And when you've got a bit of weight on board and you've got 64 feet of landing distance uh, required, uh, um, and that's the, you know, uh, that's the excess you've got over the runway length they're offering, you think, ah, this is not ideal. Uh, Trouble is with JFK, these things, they happen. You don't get much of a say in it. You know, if you refuse and want to be sequenced on the other runway, you're probably going to have to go around. Um, so, uh, we just wound the brakes up a bit more and planted it on. And actually, of course, everything turns up fine because we know the stopping distance, particularly when the factor is uh, pretty generous. So that was fine. But coming out was, uh, equally interesting because, uh, there, there was that pretty heavy line of thunderstorms moving through the area. And I was sitting in my hotel. I did a, crew log for our fabulous patreons who are so generous with their contributions always like to do something special for them uh, but i was looking out of my hotel window which is uh, just over the uh, hudson not far from where captain sully dumped his uh, 320 and i'm looking at manhattan and there are thunderbolts from heaven raining down across upon the city i was just going whoa <laughs> That's impressive as these thunderstorms moved overhead and intermittently the entire island just disappeared behind a wall of water uh, with all these uh, lightning and thunder flashes going on. I thought, well, that's great. I'm hoping that my aircraft that I'm due to take home will actually get in uh, in amongst that. In fact, they were holding well to the north and uh, we got picked up as the thunderstorms began to clear but halfway through our journey to the airport, they finally got uh, out of their hold and made an approach. So they got on the ground just about as we were arriving at the airport, which meant kind of a bit of a rash turn. Uh, not like you guys. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half, really, to get the airplane turned uh, for one of us because there's an awful lot of pillows to be plumped and, um, you know, uh, immunity kits to be <laughs> positioned and all the food and uh, 
beverages that'll be consumed have to be brought on. The place has to be completely hoovered and polished for an inch of its life. So it takes a wee while. But when we got off, in fact, that storm, those storms didn't actually prove to be much of a problem for us. Um, so it was uh, quite a pleasant uh, uh, flight home other than the taxi time, a few delays going out of JFK. There tend to be, but with the additional aircraft that have been sitting around waiting for the storms to clear, we're obviously all trying to get off at the same time. But we got home. So uh, that was that was it, really. And then I'm back there tomorrow. In fact, I'm heading off uh, for another New York tomorrow. Uh, that's a really late flight, so I won't get in until nearly midnight uh, New York time. It'll be close on 5 a.m. my body clock, so uh, that'll be actually quite hard work. Um, then, you know, dashing off again the next day. Excellent. Well, welcome to America. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. I mean, JFK the, is quite honestly one of the greatest airports as a portal to America, yet it's got some of the most useless approaches and runways in the world. But yes, it does. <laughs> what can I say? And we, we don't know why either, but that's just the way it is. That's the way it's, it's part of up. the charm of New York yes, City. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, we're glad that uh, you made it in okay and you got out of here um, relatively close to uh, schedule. Um, I had an interesting thing between the last show. Um, I, I've been flying pretty much mostly every single day since we've recorded the last show. We had a great, lovely time in Charlotte, uh, Steph and I. Uh, actually the day before we recorded the show, we, uh, we got together and then, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, actual show day. And then I got home and I was, um, uh, home for a short time and I thought, you know, things are looking like, uh, there, there's a, a good possibility for some overtime flying, what we call green slip flying. So I, I put in, um, my request to pick up some overtime flying and I guess I wasn't really thinking straight when I, when I ended up accepting this green slip, uh, this overtime flying trip, uh, which, uh, left Atlanta. Well, they called me at five 30. Uh, and he said, uh, the, the, the flight leaves at seven Oh two. And I said, that's the, that's the, the, the sign in time. And he goes, no, that's when the flight is leaving that you're going to deadhead to Sacramento on. And I went, Oh, okay. So I immediately got dressed, went, headed down to the airport and uh, got on the flight. It was like a four and a half hour flight to Sacramento. And I got there and I'm thinking we're going to fly this airplane and everybody's going to be on board already. It's scheduled to leave like 10 minutes before I'm going to get there on this deadhead flight. I'm going to run on. I'm going to sit in my seat. We're going to run the checklist and we're going to push back and we're going to go from Sacramento to Minneapolis. And so I get off the airplane. I'm expecting somebody to say, oh, are you the captain? You know, great to see you. Come on over here. Nobody is saying anything to me. And I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. I noticed there's an MD-90 at the gate next door. So I'm thinking that's probably the airplane they want me to fly. And I walk over. There's no gate agent. There's nothing. I'm thinking, well, they, she must be on or he must be on the airplane already. And they're going to come out and usher me down and we're going to, I'm, I'm sure that they're going to, I'm they're I'm going to get a lot of applause. You know, the captain has showed up and I'm going to bow and maybe make a speech, but, um, uh, that wasn't the case at all. Um, the, uh, co-pilot was there. He flew in from Minneapolis and, uh, turns out that we were going to just ferry an empty airplane 
to uh, Minneapolis because there was one that was broken. It's a long story. I don't want to get into all the details. But anyway, there were no passengers. It was just uh, the co-pilot and I, we were going to ferry this airplane. I thought, okay, well, that should be easy. And now it's, you know, pretty late and uh, we can't get anybody to give us any paperwork. We can't get fuel for the airplane. And so finally all that happened. We got out there, we pushed back and then we um, ran and, Dana will uh, be able to identify with this. It was a 90. So we got one of these messages from it was like left reverser fault or something like that. So we had to call maintenance in Atlanta and we had to go through all these things with, uh, you know, clearing things in the box and, you know, shutting the engine down and restarting it and everything else. And I thought, okay, finally, let's go. And then we got this, uh, message that said, Oh, uh, your airplane is out of balance. We have to put 500 pounds of, of sand and bin number one to make you, uh, within your safe weight and balance envelope. And so we waited for them to come out, put 500 pounds of sandbags in the bin, the forward bin so that we would be safe. And then I thought, okay, finally let's call for taxi for the third time. And then I started rolling the airplane and uh, it wasn't it wasn't turning because they forgot to um, activate this little uh, switch that uh, activates the nose wheel steering called the nose steering nose wheel steering bypass pin uh, or switch. And so they had to come out, do that. And then finally, we taxied out to the runway and then we were waiting and we were waiting. We were quite late in Sacramento. And nobody was flying in or out. And I asked the tower controller, uh, you know, why, why are we still sitting here? And he goes, well, your, your flight plan dropped out. And he kind of felt a little guilty because he should have kept it from dropping. And so we had to call Atlanta and they had to refile. And it was just uh, finally about hour and a half, two hours after we were scheduled to depart out of there, we were finally on our way to Minneapolis. And that was a very, very long flight in the middle of the night, you know, trying to stay awake. Um, anyway, got into Minneapolis. I was dead and I just went to a hotel near the airport and got some sleep and then finally got home. So that was my fun, exciting, uh, green slip. Um, but at least it was worth 23 hours of pay. Uh, so that was the good part of it, but, uh, it was, you don't look very dead to me. Well, that was several days ago. Okay. <laughs> was, so you've been reincarnated. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, just, a not, a, just one thing. It was, it's just one of those things where you, it's one thing after another, after another, and you're going, what in the world is going on here? But, uh, that was my fun it's experience. Called a snafu. Yeah. The a major snafu. I'm sure you all, you know, Dana and Ren and, uh, Captain Nick have experienced this kind of thing before oh, when everything no, goes wrong. When you're positioning flight, you just drop to the bottom of the queue. Yes. And no one really gives two hoots about you. Absolutely. Yeah, you're definitely, you know, they said when we asked about the fuel and they said, well, we're fueling this flight next door that, you know, the airplane that we came in on that was going back to Atlanta. And that made sense. You know, they have, they're full of passengers and it's a revenue flight. We're just kind of, you know, there and we're not high on the priority list. But uh, we've, we finally got out of there. And uh, I thought after the whole thing was over, especially when I got into Minneapolis, very, very, early in the morning, about five or six o'clock. Well, my body time was about six 30 in the morning. I thought, 
I wish that I had not done this, even though I got you know some extra pay. I wish that I had not, you know, accepted yeah. this trip. At, at some point, sleep is more valuable than extra money. Right. Next payday in the middle of the month, you'll forget all about it. That's true. And I got to uh, watch two movies on the way on the seven thirty seven out to California, and uh, so you know, bonus. No, what did you I, watch? I watched. Um, let's see, Hidden Figures. Oh. which was an Academy Award winning yeah. or uh, yeah, like at least nominated. Was it was a really good, good movie. All about NASA. Yeah, the NASA, and the space computers. program. Yeah. And uh, the other one, um, I, I hate to admit this, but I actually like watching romantic comedies. And uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and it was one with a- uh, Amy like Adams. Very sensitive. What's her name? Mm. Amy Adams. Is that her name? Sure. That's, a, that's an actress. Uh, that's yeah, I like it. Yeah, she's 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 cute. I like her, and it was something about Ireland, and it was a it was a cute film. Something about Ireland. Yeah, but it, that's not the name of it. But I don't remember what the name of it is. But it was really good. I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Made a big impression on you. Yes, yes. So <laughs> I am a sensitive guy. So I took a sorry. What <laughs> taco? Oh, taco. taco. Well, taco's taco. a sensitive dog. So. I don't. I don't imagine that Dana would have anything interesting to talk about since our no, no, last episode. So let, why don't we go ahead to. and uh, move on to the coffee fun? I'm just kidding. We, no, we, I know you. Uh, <laughs> he's got probably the most interesting. Uh, yes, that's why I was saving it for last. <laughs> so Dana, is has anything interesting happened to you since we last recorded? I just have one question. What is the stall speed of a seven three seven? Because it's, it, we were going into Miami yesterday and had to do S turn after S turn after S turn because the 737 in front of us is doing 120 knots. <laughs> 120 uh, knots. Situational awareness. They don't oh care my. what's going on around them. <laughs> no, no, 120 knots. No. That was crazy. But no, that was, that was the least of the interesting things that happened to us this, so far on this trip. Yeah. It's been an unbelievably interesting trip. Uh, we were one leg on uh, Tuesday evening from Atlanta to Baltimore. And we got in amazingly early. I think it was about 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes early. And that turned out to be a godsend because we figured it out later. But as uh, after we got to the hotel, got changed, decided, well, you know, the Baltimore Orioles are playing. What a great opportunity, beautiful night to go see the Orioles play in Camden Yards, which uh, Ren had never been to Camden Yards. And I had just gone for the first time last year. So we you know, hopped upstairs, got changed, met downstairs and, and went over to the, uh, you know, get an, an adult beverage liquid attitude adjustment before we went to the game keep cost down keep you know typical pilots so we, we <clears throat> walk outside and this is something i don't ever do uh not as a rule but for some reason tonight that night i felt okay i'm walking by this guy and he really looks pretty sad and i i can afford the change in my pocket so i reach into my pocket and i place all the change in my pocket into his cup and i kept we kept on walking then we uh, went to the bar and we were sitting outside. Ren wanted to get some food. I had already had a, a nice uh, earlier snack. So we we're sitting outside, sipping on bourbon, of course. And next thing you know, there's smoke over by our hotel and lots of it. It looks like the hotel is on fire. So make a very, very long story short, 
we had quite literally just walked by on the street, on the sidewalk, uh, in an area that a steam pipe had exploded and tore apart all the concrete on the, or the tarmac or what, the, the roadway. Yeah, um, the asphalt. That's the word I'm looking for. So if we had not been 20 minutes early, we possibly could have been in the van pulling you know, on that street into the hotel, then we would have been, well, not only had chunks of concrete coming up through the van or around the van, uh, I sent you guys a photo of a, a vehicle that was taken with, with chunks of concrete all over it. Um, we could have been steamed to death if it had actually hit the vehicle. We figured that out, out afterwards, and not even two or three minutes prior to us uh, walking, uh, two or three minutes later after we walked through that area is when that that uh, steam line gave way and blew up that street. Seven people was it? Yeah, I think it was seven. Seven people were injured, and I fully imagine the gentleman that I so um, blissfully gave some uh, a little bit of a donation to. He was probably one of the ones that were hurt because he was right there. Oh. So uh, the revelation came that well, we just walked through this area that very easily could have gone off when we were there. Well, it was only two or three minutes prior to us. Uh, well, we were there two or three minutes prior. So uh, we certainly could have been uh, injured. There, you know, been among those seven people. And uh, fortunately, we weren't in the van. Fortunately, uh, divine intervention. We both thanked our lucky angels um, for not getting injured, hurt, killed, maimed, or anything else. Because that's... Uh, <clears throat> that's a scary thought. So I had a little coming to uh, a little coming to the uh, Lord on that one, and you know, told my wife that night I love her very much. And um, Ren, uh, you know, for me, I don't have any kids; it's just my wife. But for Ren, he's got two beautiful young children. Um, so I'll let him give his uh, take on the whole story. Maybe I missed something. So here he is. Yeah, it was. It was. To say it wasn't divine intervention would be would be a lie. The uh, two to three minutes after we we rounded the corner and the steam started billowing out of the building, we thought the hotel was on fire. At the very least, when we uh, walked down the block and t- were, were able to get close enough to the police line to see the pictures, it really sank in for both of us, and it really sank in for me. My my kids are. Uh, just turned th- uh, my daughter just turned three and my my little guy is about to turn two and my wife and just you just kind of come to a uh, this realization that it's like wow that was close and uh, you know my the cooler from the guy selling water across the street was still there just the cooler was and it was uh, loaded with concrete chunks on top of it and you know the two guys were standing there when that happened. Uh, there was cars that are, you know, just a, about a quarter of a block down the street that are having big concrete chunks sitting on their windshields. So I mean, it could have been catastrophic because they were in a car and it hit. We would would have been just walking down the street and been pelted by, you know, exploding concrete. So that just shows you the the fragility of our lives you know we absolutely we take it for granted you know and the other thing is is it the ball game i mean it 
the ballpark is one block away from where this occurred. And it was, it's amazing that there weren't more people walking through that area mm-hmm. because it is, if anybody knows anything about Ken Yards, where the um, out in the right field is, is that famous building. Well, that road at the base of it goes straight up in front of the hotel. So it's one of the main entrances into the park. So it's amazing not that there were not more people. But it, it's uh, it's chilling. I mean, it, it, you look at it, and it looked like a war zone. It really looked like a war zone, and it, it brings to 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 heart that you know at any one point you just never know if tomorrow is going to come. And you know, we as uh, we as pilots do everything we can possibly do to operate the aircraft safely. Make no mistakes, um, and be professional. But you can be on a layover, and next thing you know, you, you get steam pipes underneath your feet blown away uh, blown up i mean one of the uh, vendors actually it was reading an article on it he moved just before it exploded because the concrete was too hot well oh. geez i wonder why <laughs> so yeah a little wow. steam so yeah it was it was for both of us you know we talked in great length about it uh to to be that close but fortunately we both had the, that guardian angel on our shoulder and it worked out in our favor f- this time Fortunately, so yep. that was our excitement of the week. And the next morning, they didn't bother to call us to tell us the flight was delayed in the morning because they didn't have enough gates to put the aircraft on. So that just started our day number. Jeez. Yeah, that's another, I mean, it was just this. This trip has been, uh, you know, that's mentioned. We didn't know when we could get back into our <clears throat> our hotel. Excuse me, because it was closed. And uh, well, you know, our uniforms are in there and and everything. So we're just like. We had called our we had called our company and let them know that um, there's a situation going on so that they could um, make the appropriate changes and reroute crews from the hotel to different hotels in the area. So yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I was l- watching the live coverage after I saw Dana, you know, post the fact that you know you guys got you know that was so such a close call. And so I was watching this coverage and I was looking at it going, oh, yeah, that's like I, I, I recognize all that stuff. I'm looking at the helicopter video uh, of the of the scene. I'm thinking, I wonder what is going to happen with the hotel and what's going to happen with you guys. And if you're going to be able to stay at the hotel and what's going to happen with your trip. Yeah, they we, we called at about 930 and they were letting us back into the hotel um, and because uh, they had determined that that where our rooms were on that side of the hotel was safe. Um, and at that point, they had contained the steam pipe in the front, um, but they had to pour water on the hotel uh, the entire time because the steam, the heat actually melted some of the windows and the frames around the windows. So it was, you know, wow. pouring water into some of the rooms. So luckily, we weren't on that side of the hotel. Um, but otherwise, you know, what are you going to do? Our uniforms and everything else in our rooms would have been destroyed. Wow. The glamorous lifestyle of an airline pilot right there. You know, I was thinking, uh, speaking of. But the oil's one. That's the important thing. Oh, okay. Well, no, let's move on then. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I was, you know, the uh, the other day we were flying in from um, Chicago to Detroit and we were, it was a beautiful day and I was looking down at Flint and I don't know if it was happening right at the time that I was flying over and looking at Flint Airport on the way on the arrival into Detroit. But uh, as we know now, there was a, another terrorist attack. Um, a police officer was attacked by a crazy person 
uh, with a knife, and um, I'm not sure how he's doing now. I'm hoping he's still alive and he's going to recover from it, but uh, apparently some dude took out some kind of a knife and slit his throat or something. So that's uh, just, uh, I'm thinking to myself now, you know, that could have been Dana. It could have been Ren. It could have been me or any of us at this airport, you know, showing up for a flight. But especially if you're a, a police officer or a somebody in uniform like a pilot, you know, we're, we're probably likely to be greater targets uh, for some of these nut jobs, you know, um, expressing their crazy, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. It's just a crazy world we're living in right now, isn't it? It is. I mean, the best you can do is just keep your guard up and, you know, you pay try and be aware of your, yeah, yeah. you gotta be aware of your surroundings and, you know, it's, there's a lot of situations out there though, that you just can't plan for, can't be prepared for. I think the situation in Baltimore is a perfect example of that. I mean, there's, if you happen to be right there, right then, that that's not something you could have saw coming, you know? No, no, there's, there's no, there's no way. Yeah. We, you know, it, it's just, there was, no, there was no warning. There was, yeah. it was just, I'm like, you know, two, two to three minutes later, we turned around and we saw this big billowing smoke coming out of the, our hotel. And, uh, I mean, we were just there. Had we been on time, we could have been just over it. So, uh, hey, sometimes it's, it pays to go a little faster. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. I mean, it's just like this, uh, the Flint officer. I mean, he's sitting there doing his job at the security checkpoint, or I don't know what security checkpoint, or whether he was just walking through the terminal or prior to the security checkpoint. But, you know, you, 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 you're in a very low threat area, Flint, Michigan, really. And next thing you know, you get a knife stuck in your throat, yeah. in your neck. So, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you just don't know what, what nasty curveball life is going to throw you at any given moment. So, you know, my, 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 my personal motto is always learn from yesterday and live for tomorrow because you never know if, it, you know, you don't know if tomorrow's coming. You and, know, you know, we uh, hear that all the time and it's so, it's so easy to say, but it's so true. I mean, you, we don't know, you know, we get, we get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, and that may be. Well, that means they have to move up in seniority though. Well, that's true. There, <laughs> there's always a, a, a silver lining for some people. <laughs> well, Ren does too. Gotta look, gotta look on the bright side of these tragedies, really, you know. <laughs> Okay. So, in the bright side, we, Ren thought we, somebody was talking. Glenn was talking about him in, in the uh, in the uh, chat room, but we scrolled up, and Ren was uh, Glenn was actually uh, was referring to Ron. Somebody had referred to Ron Jeremy. So, um, <laughs> if his Ren's first experience with uh, the chat room, so I oh, yeah. said I like that. Yeah, Ron is a is a very highly regarded actor. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that's about as far as we want to go with that. Thank you. His endowment, his endowment from the charities of, yes, of God. The endowments, uh, of yes. the endowment of the arts, <laughs> or yes. whatever that is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's see. So uh, again, great uh, that uh, you guys weren't there at the time, and you're still with us. And, uh, uh, yeah, again, uh, our, our life is, uh, so precious and we should all, you know, kind of think about, uh, you know, how much we have and, uh, live your life like it. It's the last day you have on this earth. Great. It's easy to say, but you know, cheers. yeah. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Cheers. We're all clinking our glasses. 
Okay. <laughs> Pilot Pip shows in the chat shows up in the chat room. Uh, who got hit by a bus? <laughs> I didn't. I'm okay. <laughs> it, it was just a grazing, really. I mean, yeah. everyone's everyone's fine. Yeah, it's okay, Pip. Okay. You always looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, oh, you know what? I forgot to mention. Uh, so I'm on this current trip. Uh, started Wednesday. It's a four day trip, and uh, I'm flying with a brand new. Well, I say brand new. He's, He's been with the company for six months and, uh, he, and I can't get trips with you. Yeah. What's up with that? I don't know, but he's, he's only been with the, with the company for six months. He was on reserve. I guess my co-pilot called in sick or something. I don't know. I guess I'm one of those captains that people call in sick for <laughs> anyway. Uh, so he, um, uh, showed up and I noticed when I signed in that, uh, he was uh, on probation. I'm thinking, uh, Okay. And uh, he's been with the company for six months. And then I found out that he has a bid for captain on the 88, <laughs> as, as Dana does as well. But Dana's been around a lot longer than six months. And he kind of knows the ropes a little bit more than this guy. But anyway, uh, he Chris is a very nice guy. And he, uh, and he really uh, – he's a sharp individual. And I said, so I kind of explained that, okay, my deal is, and, and this is the story is that I used to fly with this guy, uh, a 727 captain that would always pay for everything, uh, food, beer, everything. And I always felt guilty about that. And he said, when I was on probation and he said, uh, no problem. As long as you promise me that when you're a captain, that you'll, um, make sure that you take care of your uh, pilots that are on probation when you're a captain. So I said, I, I, I promise. So that was a promise that I made. And so when Chris showed up, I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to pay for your beer and your food. And I have a meetup uh, scheduled here tonight in Washington, DC. And so if you want to take advantage of this offer, you need to come with me to this meetup. And I think, I think Chris, if you asked him, uh, would say that it was a good time. And so he came with me to the uh, Pizzeria Paradiso on uh, just off of Duncan, or what was it called? Uh, something. DuPont Circle. DuPont Circle. Circle. This is unbelievably yeah. good. Yeah, it's great. Awesome, great awesome beer selection. Great. I, I think Dana's been pizza. there. Uh, a few hundred times. Yeah. Okay. So that's where we went. We had our meetup there. And what was funny about it was at first, <laughs> I wasn't sure if anybody was going to show up. One of the people said, oh, I got a conflict and I'm going to, you know, I have, you know, have to be with my children. And then I'm, after building this whole thing up, I'm thinking this is, I'm going to really look bad because uh, nobody's going to show up. But luckily, um, Alex showed up and then Tony Fletcher, you know, the guy that gave us our uh, K p something or other hats the uh the airport in the um uh-huh. potomac was it the potomac airport well, I, I don't remember the exact oh, gosh, name I, should really know. I actually wear mine all the time and now i can't think of the actual it's a great hat i wear it all the time oh, yeah, when i, I really go uh, walking and running it's a fantastic cap and his son colin uh also uh, uh was there and uh then joe from buffalo i mean uh many of you listening know joe he shows up at farnborough uh, he's from Buffalo, New York, but he was in Farnborough uh, last year in July. Uh, he was at uh, Wings over Pittsburgh. And uh, mm-hmm. so Joe is uh, uh, known uh, by many of us in the APG community. And he was there. 
And uh, so it was Chris, my co-pilot, and uh, Alex. I think I covered everybody. So I ended up uh, just pushing the record button on my phone. And uh, let me play this. And I haven't listened to the whole thing, so I hope that it's not too bad. So here we go. We're going to listen to our uh, meetup last night at uh, the Pizzeria Paradiso. What time are you going to do it tomorrow? Evening? Yeah, probably around 5 o'clock. Oh, okay. Hey, Captain Jeff here. Have you heard of me? Uh, we are at a meetup in Washington, D.C. It's kind of a last-minute thing. Um, with Tony, right? You're the one that kind of said, hey, are you going to be in? Yeah. So he said, hey, I noticed you're going to be in D.C., so let's do a meetup if you uh, you know, aren't doing anything else. And I said, yeah, I'd love to as long as we're not recording a show, and we're not. So um, Chris, my first officer, is with me, and I, I'm sure he was kind of skeptical about this whole thing. He, <laughs> Some dude talking about a, really a podcast, and I said, "But, but it, the, the, what got him though is I said, I'm paying for all your beer and all your food." I'm there, so he said, "Okay." So anyway, um, I, I really honestly didn't know how many people were going to show up. I knew Tony was going to make it. Tony's with his son Colin, and uh, Alex showed up, and uh, Joe. Joe's been to a few different meetups in the past. It was at Pittsburgh and Farnborough. Any more than that? Okay. No, oh, that's that's a lot though. Yeah. So um, anyway, so I'm going to pass my phone around, and you can say something. Don't get too close to it because it sometimes overmodulates, and you can just hold it by the edges there. You're, gonna, you're holding it wrong. You know what uh, Steve Jobs said when they had the uh, antenna problem with the iPhone? You're holding it. You're just not holding it right. All right. So, and you don't have to say anything if you don't want. You can say it. All right. Well, this is uh, Tony Fletcher from Alexandria, Virginia, and I guess we've been uh, monitoring the where is Captain Jeff schedule and finally saw a, a DCA trip and threw the, the idea out for the meetup, so here we are. Hello to the rest of the crew. <laughs> hey, this is Alex. This is my first meetup here. I actually saw Jeff's tweet about an hour before this meetup. I'm like, holy crap, he's in D.C. So it's great to meet everybody in my first meetup. Uh, I've been listening for a few years, and it's actually great to meet people in person and talk about aviation, which we all love. So this has been fantastic. I'm Chris. I'm uh, Jeff's FO on this trip, so I'm fairly new to Delta. So Jeff's been doing a good job showing me the ropes. And so uh, Acme, Chris. Yeah. Oh, he flies for Acme. And he's been great, and he's just as cool in real life as he is in the podcast. Uh, my name is Joe from Buffalo, and uh, I've been a follower of the show uh, since uh, at least four years. Been listening and. I try to get to the meetups whenever I can. Uh, I went to I was in Farnborough and uh, just recently in Pittsburgh and say hello to the rest of the crew and it's just been a great time and this impromptu meetup I got the meetup message on Twitter about an hour ago and it's been great. So, uh oh, I just hit a button. Are we still recording? <laughs> yeah, we're still recording. All right, awesome. Um, so that's. That is um, a good reason to follow the crew on Twitter, APG Crew or Airline Pilot Guy. And uh, sometimes we come up with these last-minute things. And if you happen to be following us and you happen to see it at the right time, as Alex and Joe did, uh, you can you can join in all the av geekery. 
and it's just a lot of fun. Just getting together and with in real life with real people and talking about our passion for aviation is always a lot of fun. Not to mention drinking good beer and eating great food. So, anyway, so Tony, thanks for suggesting that we do this. Uh, thank you for all that you do. Appreciate that. All right. He just showed up. Yeah, well, yeah, but it wasn't just showing up. You, they had an epic Uber drive, so hopefully your Uber drive is a little bit better on the way back. All right. Anyway, so, airline pilot guy, out. There you go. I guess it turned out. Those little iPhones are actually pretty nice recording devices. Yeah, so we had a great time. Um, great, great pizza and great beer. And of course, as we always say, great company. So, hey, hey Jeff, did he actually get the award, or did he put the bid in? I uh, what? Oh, your he, first officer. Yeah, you know, he actually got the award. He doesn't know when he's going to go through conversion. Uh, nobody yeah, does, I guess. They haven't posted that yet. Yeah, six months. Military, or civilian. Uh, civilian. He worked with uh, Endeavor for I think he said uh, nine years. Yeah, so um, he'll be, he'll be okay. I mean, he still doesn't know the airport. Yeah, I, mean, I have so. to say, you know, it's, I guess it's hard for a, for us who were hired back in the late eighties, nineties, and whatever. And when it takes 10, 12 years to check out as a captain, you have a lot of experience as a first officer for a major airline. And when you're flying with somebody that, just got hired by a major airline and they're already within their first year going to be upgrading a captain. Uh, it gives, it makes you kind of, it gives you pause to think about the ramifications of that. But again, you have to look at the person's background and uh, you know, experience is important. Well, I think it's like anything else. I mean, certainly the experience counts for a lot yeah and there will always be those few people from day one who are going to be great captain material no matter what no matter how much experience they have they're just naturals for the whole job the whole picture and then there's going to be you know the other end of the spectrum where there's those few people who are never going to be a good captain despite all the experience in the world so you know I, i don't think it hurts to have more experience i don't know why you'd want to rush into a job like that um, necessarily. At least I wouldn't. I think I'd want to have a lot of familiarity. I'd want to know the company well. Well, yes, I understand that. There's certainly financial motivators, but there's also safety motivators and, you know, it's it's a multifaceted job. It's not, there's a lot to learn on the job, not just from training. I'm intrigued, Jeff. Don't you guys have a strict seniority system for for promotion? Yes, we do. But the airplane that Dana and Ren and I fly, um, the seniority is kind of out of whack when it comes to uh, the captain spot uh, because it's um, had a bad reputation, the airplane has, for many, many years. And so it's the situation that's been created that people that are very junior are still are able now to bid for a captain's slot on on this jet now it's not like you're seeing people in their first year getting a captain's slot on a 737 or a 75 76 777 etc but for some reason 
on on the mad dog it's uh, a lot of people are thinking i i've heard so many horrible things about this jet i don't want to fly it and uh you know it's, it's old technology and all that kind of stuff and and so a lot of people shy away from it and uh that leads to the situation where people can end up getting something way out of seniority just because everyone above them has refused yes okay or or tries to bid for different aircraft and the and and in other words a lot of um of what he's saying is absolutely 100 percent correct there's a lot of new guys that have never flown uh an airplane with steam gauges and you know you, if you've grown up in the late 90s and learned how to fly them in the late 90s in the 2000s and you had garmin 1000 systems and gps systems and cessna 172s and you're flying crjs or some military airplanes and you've had the greatest technology you kind of forget what we all learned on as when we went through pilot training as what is what a six-pack is and what your scan is going to be and really the mad dog is really the last airplane um that i i will truly be able to fly in the rest of my career uh, and I say that because it's it's a pilot's airplane. We make the final decision on everything, whereas you know everything else, you start managing systems and you become a pilot manager and you're managing the systems and you're managing this. I mean, those cables come right up to the yoke and those throttle cables come right up to us. So uh, the Mad Dog is is a working airplane. It's like a honey badger. It just doesn't care. Just <laughs> keep on going. I love it just that. doesn't care. Yeah. Okay, so here I you see know. the problem being that um, you get guys who are extremely junior on the company who are going to successfully bid for a command slot on an aircraft that's extremely difficult to fly and may well be out of their experience zone. How does that uh, meet you guys with your uh, opinion on the, the, the best guys to put into the left-hand seat? Well, it you have to make it through training and you have been hired and you know, the, the airlines don't hire just become a first officer. When we go through the hiring process, they're looking at you as, as a captain, how are you going to be and how are you going to handle becoming a captain? And when you are a captain now, maybe it's pretty quick and might have a different opinion on when you should be able to upgrade or, or not. However, we have, uh, I, I've flown with many new hires that we've hired recently over the last couple of years. And, we have got a fantastic pilot group with great knowledge and great skills. And uh, our interview process and our training process is really, you know, well, we did all on that side of things. Um, but we've, we've developed a really good core and quality pilot. Yes. So their, their skills and their experience level from the regionals, that's awesome. But they still kind of lack the kind of experience that, Dana and Ren and I have had well, before we actually, you know, were able to upgrade. So, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled for these guys that well, they're able to do this so quickly, but as I mean, Ren makes a good point. Acme doesn't hire first officers. They hire captains. And so they fully expect that somebody that they're hiring is going to be able to do this job as a captain. And, you know, it's, I, I, for me, it's kind of like, it's, it's like a two edged sword. It's like, uh, in a way I'm kind of thrilled that they are able to do this so quickly. 
And, and trust me, it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm jealous because it took me 12 years to get a captain's bid um, because it's all about timing and what airline you're with and the, uh, the economy and everything else. But uh, I, I, uh, I, I do think that we have to be extra careful and, and they do get extra training, by the way. He told me that because he is so new with the company and he's checking out as a captain, he's going to end up getting a lot of extra training before he gets, you know, his, his blessing by the, uh, by, by ACME and the, uh, and the FAA. So I, I, no, I have no, I have no doubt. I have no concerns at all. I don't feel uncomfortable with somebody like this guy that I flew with Chris, uh, being a, captain in within a year and so you know I'm, i have no problem with it well no so here's the thing right okay we are hiring hiring these guys and girls and they are super junior to answer the question to what nick was talking about i think it's a lot different over in europe or asia you know it, it's i don't know what the captain award processes over there but from what i understand someplace like uh, you know i have friends over at emirates um it's not based on your seniority as much as a recommendation from a captain after you have enough experience to be awarded that position uh whereas with our airplane the mad dog the word on the street is, is if you if you if you if you if you're not willing to work hard and not willing to work, you know, you know, multiple legs a day and fly in and out of the weather in and out of Atlanta all the time. You want to sit there and have, you know, a, an 8, 10, 12-hour flight and sit there with a dinner, a meal, and a nap, you know, for your two and a half, a movie, two, three and a half hours. Those, that's where all the senior guys sit because when they come to work, they fly one leg. They go there overnight. They come back. They fly one back, one leg back. And generally... That's what they do. So that's why they stay senior. Where so it allows the junior guys, and believe it or not, the seven one seven is more senior, which is a lower paying airplane than the MD eighty eight is, because it's not you know it's a busier airplane as far as legs. You know it, it's not uncommon for that airplane to fall. We call it the triple nickel. The triple se- the seven one seven is triple nickel because it flies five legs a day, five day trips. And it pays five dollars less an hour, and so it. But it's amazing how much more senior that airplane is because, well, the flight plan automatically loads in. The cockpit is cool; it it, it stays cool. Uh, whereas the eighty eight, it 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 it's a pretty warm cockpit in the in the summertime, and it, the technology isn't as advanced. And you know, when Rem was talking about the, uh, uh, Chris is coming over from you said Masaba Pinnacle. I can't remember what uh, Endeavor, Endeavor. Okay. You know, Ren brought up a very good point. This guy has never seen or probably has not flown steam gauges maybe since he flew 172s because everything over at Denver is all the CRJ product. And so it's all advanced cockpit displays like what you, you know, see it at, on, on the Airbus. So it, it's, it's, it is an issue of going through training. And they're not just going to sign people off that are not able to. And for me personally, I'm upgrading to captain. Everybody knows that. Well, guess what? I don't know how to be a captain because I've really never been a captain. I spent three months at the regional as a captain. And uh, for uh, for me, I already know the airplane. I know where we go. I know how the airplane flies. I know the systems. I know everything about 
uh, how the whole operation works. The only thing I don't know how to be is a captain. So maybe this Endeavor guy, who's been a captain for a long time, now he's doing the opposite. He's going to have to learn the system, how Delta works, how where we go, how the airplane operates. So, you know, there's some positives and negatives to both sides of it. So yeah. you, you, you got to defend both sides, I think. Yeah, well, he, The uh, only thing I was thinking of, and, and Jeff's actually talked about this a lot in the past, is when you're the first officer, the co-pilot, you get to fly with a lot of different captains, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different ways of managing situations, managing the airplane. And you can kind of pick and choose the best of what you like from everyone and use that to make yourself a better captain when you're in that position. And without having that type of experience, um, I, I think that's where he might be missing out a little bit. Well, he's going to, in some respects, I mean, it's under, up, up to the individual. If he's a captain long enough at, at Endeavor, then he's going to already have de- developed that skill. But what sure. where it becomes a problem is CRM. And the CRM issue is if you are a new captain at Delta, I mean, uh, ACME, <laughs> pick that up. Um, anyways, if you're a new captain at Acme, uh, the, the the bottom line is you haven't sat in the right seat very long, so you don't understand the operation from that side of the house. So it'd be very easy for you to kind of step on somebody's toes. It's a first officer that's been here for a while and not realize what you're doing and doing so and alienating the first officer, which it comes down to a CRM issue. Yeah. And that's a primary job as a captain is to kind of be the a negotiator uh, in the peacekeeper of, of the crew. I mean, that's what the, what you need to do. You need to communicate and make sure you keep the person that's in the other seat in the game with you. So he, they're there to help you out as a captain. So that, that, that's where I think, uh, the the hard part's going to be is, is they're not going to have that experience to draw upon. I mean, exactly what Steph is, Dr. Steph is saying. Yeah. Yes. Very well said. But you know what? Um, Chris, I don't have any doubt that he's going to be a, a fine captain. Um, would he be a better captain if he had more experience? Uh, probably. But I don't I don't you know, feel uncomfortable at all about this particular gentleman and the fact that he's going to be, you know, part of a, the cadre of captains at Acme. So, um, and as, as you mentioned, or maybe Ren mentioned, uh, so, some of the new hires that we've been getting in the last year, year and a half, whatever, uh, by far, most of the people that I've flown with have really impressed me with their skills and, uh, so I'm 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 very positive about all this happening in the future. Well, and and and, and Ren hit it right on the head. They're not going to put somebody out to the wolves uh, on the line if they right. don't feel comfortable. That's true. And, and the other thing is is at Acme we have an incredible support network. Yes. So as a um, captain, you have all these resources, especially on the domestic system, you know, like when, when Nick is flying international, you know, you still have, you still have a support system, but you, you're, you know, you're over, you're over the pond in the middle of nowhere with not a whole lot of options. And you have to make some pretty serious decisions and relatively quickly without having, you know, may, may, may be able to consult the company, may not, but you know, you're, 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 exposure to having to make those type of decisions i think are a bit higher than than you know if you're flying domestic uh over here at acme because we do have a a fantastic support network uh to help you out 
in most situations. Yes. And now, Nick, do you have anything to say on that? No, right. I think you're quite <laughs> right. Well done. Okay. Oh, uh, by the way, I, I've had some other news I forgot. Oh, um, look at that. My wife and I have just celebrated our, f- our Ruby wedding anniversary. Oh, so nice. Just wanted it. Lovely. Julie won't listen to me. My lovely wife won't listen to this because she thinks it's silly and she's in bed, which is very sensible. Um, but uh, I would like to wish her thank you very much indeed. We're lucky men if we can find a woman who will stick th- in, through us through yes. our entire flying career. It's not an easy job for a wife, particularly after 19 years in the service, as well as uh, all the years civil flying. So I really appreciate that. You are a lucky man, and she's a beautiful woman, and... Uh Congratulations. You're very kind. No, fantastic. Congratulations. Yes. Not, enough of that. Let's go and do something sensible. No, I'd rather look at that beautiful photo that you have there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Aww. Oh. Okay. Well, you Congratulations. Mean, that, that beautiful photograph. There you go. That one too. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Uh, that's a great photo. Rusty? Yeah. yeah. Ruff, ruff. <laughs> okay. Um, for those of the podcast, I'm putting up different pictures instead of my ugly mug. So, <laughs> well, none of this will be in the audio. So, oh damn! Sorry. Actually, I listened to the last show, Jeff. All that rubbish you said—it <laughs> was all in the podcast. So well, as far as you like, know, I'm this editing. is not. <laughs> he's like I'm editing. Yeah, he always he's says that. He back. never takes it out. <laughs> no, I sometimes I look at it. I, I I listen to it and I go, you know what? No, I think the people that are listening, you know, the majority of the people listening to the show would really appreciate this, this banter that we're having right now. So I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> I don't believe you. I just think, so, you go, ah, the hell with it. Publish it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, what I really should do is just say, whatever we do, that's what's going to be on the audio, audio podcast. It would make my life so much easier. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trouble is, we got Dana on board. We yeah, I know. So that's why I have to do the editing. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> We're just, just I'm sitting right here, you know. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Dana's here. Hit the mute switch. Sorry. Oh shoot! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, coffee fun. We made fun. it to the coffee fun. No, yet. we haven't even no. gotten there yet, and we've already we been going for about an hour. What? Have we done the news? Have we? Have we done the no, news? we no, haven't we done have the news. <laughs> we haven't done anything. We've just been blabbing. Blabbering. Uh, right. Okay, ahead. so what we're going to do now is we're going to do the coffee. And I'm not going to do this stupid, uh, not stupid, the lovely ink spots anymore because, okay, so apparently one of these stupid companies that I thought they were leaving me alone, but they're not, uh, have decided that because I um, – uh, abused copyright with the ink spots. Again, it's not copyrighted. Uh, they ended up shutting the video down for some countries. So some folks in Ireland can't watch the video because of uh, one of these copyright scam mm. artists have mm. decided that, uh, well, no, this is our thing, our property, and Jeff used it on his show. Exactly. And so this time we're going to do the just the karaoke version, which, again, probably is copyrighted, too. But maybe I'll get away with it. So in the meantime, one of these days, I'm going to record just 
the piano, uh, me playing the piano of it, and then hopefully nobody will nail me for copyright. But in the meantime, I haven't gotten that ready. So let me do this. I get to go pay pay. Go pay pay. <laughs> We're going to do Did the coffee fund while he's gone. Okay. Now it's time for the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java, Java, and it loves me. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, so the coffee fund. What the heck is Captain Jeff talking about? Well, it's your way to support the show financially. And again, as we always say, if you are somebody struggling to pay for your rent and your food and clothing and other stuff and flying lessons, most importantly, we don't want your stinking money. No, we want people that are financially mature and have the ability to give to the coffee fund because they have this money in their pockets and they don't know what to do with it. So it's a great way to help out the Airline Pilot Guys show to help us offset some of our expenses. So if that is you, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. There you'll find the different ways we have to support the show financially. And one of them is PayPal, the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we've had, well, I think just one uh, example of that. And that was a recurring payment by... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find the page here. There we go. This is just not working out well at all. Chris Randall uh, has sent another recurring payment every month. He sends us money to support the show. Thank you, Chris. We do appreciate that. Uh, another way to support the show is something called Patreon. Um, you can become a patron of the show. And since the last show, we've had zero new patrons. But that's okay. Because we already have a bunch of great patrons who support the show on a per-episode basis. And you really are the people that uh, really make this thing happen. And I can't tell you, we can't tell you, how much we appreciate your generous contributions. So if you want to check out the Coffee Fund, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And now it's time for the news. Stand by for news. Since the last, well, I should say, we should mention that uh, one of the important members of our APG community, the webmaster for the AirlinePilotGuy.com website, Arash, uh, is 
in the midst of trying to raise money for um, a ride, a bike ride that he's doing called the Ride to Conquer Cancer. And you can find that information by heading over to the show notes and finding out about this great fundraising event that uh, Arash is uh, participating in. He is seeking uh, our support for the third Enbridge Ride to Conquer Cancer, a two-day, 250-kilometer cycling journey, which benefits the Siegel Cancer Center or Seagal Cancer Center at the Jewish Hospital in Montreal. And uh, he is trying to raise a minimum of $2,500 before July 2017. So we're getting close. We're still in June, but he's going to be doing this ride uh, next month. And uh, we'll have information about how you can participate if you would like and you have the ability ability to do so. Uh, Arash, uh, he mentions in his uh, little bio here, is that he is a, uh, a survivor of uh, cancer. He had Hodgkin's. And uh, after finishing his treatments, he took on a new approach to life and even more active lifestyle than before. So... He has been very active since uh, going through this, uh, this struggle with cancer. He's successfully completed 14 marathons, 10 full marathons, and four half marathons. And he said, I'm going to continue to keep my body strong through numerous healthy activities. So again, uh, if you want to help out one of our family members in the APG community, Arash, please check out the show notes and contribute to his Fundraising for the Ride to Conquer Cancer. I saw this in the news um, just very recently. I think part of the Paris air show. Yeah, air show. Mm -hmm. Yep. They uh, mentioned that um, Airbus and uh, another company called DRS Technologies and L3 Communications are uh, presenting a uh, a solution possibly to uh, the issue of airplanes crashing in the middle of oceans uh, that are far from uh, humanity. And uh, we, you know, we like we've had several instances of these kind of accidents and crashes where we don't know really where the airplane is. And we, it takes, takes some time to, you know, figure out where uh, the crash is located, et cetera. And people have said, we need to come up with some, better way to you know find these airplanes uh, more quickly the european airspace giant airbus is to fix deployable flight recorders to its planes that will eject them from the plane and float on water in the event of a crash into the sea the beacon on it will alert emergency surges um, alert emergency services within minutes <laughs> put, your, put your teeth back man in. Be much better off just doing it okay in your room take two the beacon on it will alert emergency services within minutes 
says Charles Champion, Executive Vice President of Engineering at Airbus Commercial Aircraft at a press conference on Wednesday. The new recorder will hold up to 25 hours of recorded voice and data. It's designed to survive the impact of terminal velocity and will float on water. So we know we've talked about this before. I think some military services use this kind of uh, device, and we were and we've discussed this on the show before, where uh, this might be a good idea to have some kind of a deployable uh, flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder device uh, to uh, uh, you know help us investigate some of these accidents. And so it looks like. They've come up with something that uh, actually might might work. And uh, so I thought that was pretty good news. I don't know how practical it is and how much it's going to cost. And I don't know if it means that it's only going to be the installed in airplanes that are just now being produced by Airbus or the, or this is something that's going to be retrofitted and how much of that's going to cost. I'm not sure. Do you, know, you guys know anything about this? Well, I, I can assure you that no um, airline's going to pay to have this fitted unless they're required to by legislation. So unless uh, EASA uh, and uh, the FAA um, say you've got to have it, uh, I, I would bet you a pound to a pinch of um, snuff that uh, no one's going to pay to have it put on board. However, if it's uh, going to be on new aircraft, this is great. Uh, I. I, I I was previously discussing this with you, Jeff, and uh, thought that actually um, the future would be um, direct download, direct uh, data linking of uh, current conditions on the aircraft automatically uh, happening all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I still think that the future will go that way. But this has one advantage I hadn't really considered in that when the aircraft strikes the water, um, or the ground or whatever, um, it's ejected at that point, uh, which actually gives you the location of the crash, which is actually really sensible. So uh, with a, a satellite um, technology, you can home into the position of one of these signals and you'll instantly know where to go to, which means if there are survivors, you can find them very quick time. So I think actually this is probably a preferable solution. Um Mind you, uh, even having said that, with uh, uh, with a data link solution, you would still know the aircraft's position because when it stopped transmitting, that's going to be pretty close to the point where it goes down. But no, I think anything that improves our ability to find out what happens after a crash and possibly to uh, recover survivors as quickly as possible has got to be good. Sure. And, you know, certainly survivors is probably the number one priority there, but having that information as quickly as possible, that always seems to be what takes the longest to to get to and to actually recover those, you know, flight data recorders, voice recorders, because they're well, just think of the money of, spent to, on yeah. some of these massive searches. Oh, sure. stuff. I mean, it's a huge amount of yeah. wasted money. Well, not wasted money, but it would have been made so much simpler. It could have been like less less money. Exactly right. Had some yeah. one of these resources for could, The resources could be so much better spent. Yeah, know, that's that's in, very in good. That's yeah. what I was trying to say. And, and you know, it sounds like they're going to have it all as just integrated into one as opposed to two separate recorders. Yeah, I've never had a problem with uh, voice recorders uh, going for the entire trip, but ours, uh, they eventually cycle over. And that's kind of a hangover from, from the old days when they're first introduced. Pilots were very resistant to having voice recorders. And they insisted that they only covered 
the last uh, few minutes of the aircraft flight prior to an incident so that, uh, you know, if they were chatting about the chief pilot and uh, <laughs> someone was We'd a bit do that. had an indiscretion with his wife, <laughs> then uh, the chief pilot wouldn't find out about it. But uh, I don't know what, what you guys, uh, I have absolutely no problem with having 25 hours of voice recording, but how about you guys? Do you feel the same? Dana? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Quiet. It looked like he was here. Was like, uh, well, I looked like Dana was going to think of my response here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, but, you know, he, here's the deal. I mean, think of it. We we are so far behind in technology. There's so, many, so much more modern technology that's available today that would enable the aircraft to be immediately located via satellite. I mean, you think of this. I mean, you've got the you've got a satellite signal coming down to the aircraft, so they can locate it, you know, itself via GPS. Well, what about the ability to send that information back up to the satellite, so you can always know, like you know, the uh, the MH uh, was it what was the flight number? Um, uh, three seventy. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, in, in in today's world, we should be able to go ahead and use the technology that we have in the sky to always know where the aircrafts yeah. aircraft are because they always know where they are via the satellite. I mean, it's 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 crazy to me, but yet it, it always comes down to the mighty dollar. Nobody's willing to spend the, the dollar to to put the equipment and technology on the aircraft. I I just want to say that. I, it was just a coincidence that I met the chief pilot's wife at that bar. I, that's all I want to say about that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we promise not to mention it. Okay. So. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So now uh, they're saying 25 hours of uh, recording time. You know, I, I guess I don't have a problem with that either. So, so no, I mean, it, everything should be transparent. Yeah. I think. I, I think that you know what. In all honesty, what I would have a problem with is not twenty-five hours of recording. I would have a problem to decide to put video recording into. Yeah, the flight but don't, don't you think that that's inevitable? I think so. Yeah, I know we don't. Really do, we, I know we all how we feel about it. A lot of us, most of us, but I think that is just an an in inevitability that we're going to have uh video cameras you know recording this stuff and it's going to make the job of uh the crash investigators uh much easier because they're going to see what's going on in the cockpit because a lot of that you have to make assumptions and uh you know you that's not always the most accurate way of doing an investigation but uh anyway Picture's worth a thousand words. That's right. That's right. Yeah, okay. Ultimately. Hey, did you hear? Have you heard of this uh, actress? Her name is uh, Jennifer Lawrence. She's, she's been in a few movies, The Hunger Games, and many, many others. Uh, she was on an airplane, um, a charter airplane, a corporate flight, uh, flying a Hawker Beechcraft 400 XP from Louisville. I think they're going to Teterboro. Uh, near uh, in New Jersey, near New York City, and they had to divert into Buffalo International Airport because they ended up having a problem with one of their engines. Uh, one of their engines failed or flamed out, and 
as they were diverting to Buffalo at some point, it doesn't really, it's not very clear to me exactly what, at what point the second engine failed. It said during the landing. So I don't know what that means, actually. You know, like right above the ground during the landing roll uh, on short final, whatever. But uh, apparently some of the news reports are showing that it was a, quote, dead stick landing. In other words, no power at all on this airplane when it actually touched down in Buffalo. They were uh, at 31,000 feet over northwestern Pennsylvania when it appears the first engine quit. That's where the aircraft diverted to Buffalo, and the second engine went out sometime after that. Um, obviously, it was a happy ending. Uh, Jennifer is still with us, and the pilots are as well. And uh, this kind of uh, reminds me of an incident of, I believe, the same aircraft type. Uh, they were flying over or near Jacksonville, Florida. This was a few years ago, and they had a dual engine flame out, and they basically had to dead stick the airplane to uh, Jacksonville International for a safe and successful landing. And that's when they started learning about something we call ice crystal icing. And we at Acme know all about that, and uh, some of our fleets have to be especially uh, careful with uh, the conditions that are are uh, uh, favorable for ice crystal icing, uh, especially our 757 fleet. I'm sure that Dana and uh, Ren have seen those uh, turbulence plots uh, out there that kind of specify that this is a situation that the 757 fleet has to be very, very careful uh, with because conditions are fair, favorable for ice crystal icing. And I think that this is probably what happened uh, on this particular flight, although details are are pretty thin uh, regarding this. But uh, it was a safe landing, a successful, happy ending. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about this one? I had a massage uh, like that once. A, a, a successful ending. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh. Not where I thought that was going, but okay. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with ice crystals. I'm guessing. No, no, no. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see. Candle can... wax. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Wow. This is going to be a hard editing. Coming, this coming back to aviation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, Steph, please. I think it would be interesting if they can determine when that second engine actually did fail or quit, because yeah. that'll have a lot more to do with the potential seriousness of the, the incident. You know, one engine out, not a good thing. Both engines out, really not a good thing. No, um, not a good like thing. Like you said. If it was a helicopter, it'd be a whole lot different story. Yeah. So yeah. helicopters will be going straight down versus an airplane still can glide. Yeah, can still so, fly and sort of. Fly. Yeah, I guess a few helicopter pilots would say they could auto rotate. Yeah, yeah, that's have, always an option. They start with enough height, so uh, yeah. it's, it's a low level problem for them. If, uh, but uh, no, I I uh, would uh, point my finger at the fuel system uh, when you get a two engines quitting, uh, that's fuel starvation or. A, Neutral problem, uh, fuel tanks, but uh, uh, we're really all guessing. So I think yeah. uh, next week we'll be able to come up with uh, some sensible. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to. You know, uh, the the bad thing is that uh, these kind of incidents aren't always tracked by 
the NTSB, although in this case it may be, um, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to be able to uh, track the investigation of this and find out exactly what happened. But I, you know, it could be a fuel related issue. It could be an ice crystal icing kind of a event. Uh, who knows? Yeah, we we, uh, well, we used to have a lot of concerns about that for a little while, Jeff. Uh, um, we used to really severely, in fact, it's still in our books, uh, we've enhanced our ice shedding procedures. Uh, and it affects us not so much now. They've been modified slightly at high level. But now if we're uh, landing in low visibility, low temperatures, uh, there's a good chance that the uh, the front stage, the big fan at the front, will start to get a lot of uh, uh, ice adhering to it. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, when you turn the airplane around and go out for the next trip, uh, you have to uh, add the time the previous flight had um, coming in, taxiing in, landing and taxiing in in those conditions to your flight as you go out because uh, that ice won't necessarily have melted off the uh, front stage of the fans and you're just adding to uh, a problem that's already there. So by the time you get airborne, you have to really be aware of it. So we have some quite complicated ice shedding procedures to be performed uh, if uh, going, we're going out in, in uh, sort of below 10 and low visibility procedures. So Nick, have you ever experienced ice crystal icing? I mean, have you ever seen at really high altitudes, you're flying over um, a a, maybe a convective system or a system that has a lot of uh, rain activity in it and you see like water droplets on your windscreen up at really super high altitude and under very cold conditions. Well, I have seen what looks like them, Jeff, because the, when they hit your windshield, they behave a bit like water drops. They they don't just flick off, or you, you actually you wouldn't even see ice crystals normally. Yeah. But these actually go splatter, and uh, you go, well, that's interesting. I've never seen it bad enough to actually start creating a layer of ice. Never had that, um, but uh, I, I've certainly seen what looks like it, and um, I've also seen climbed out of an aircraft that when we came in during poor visibility and low temperatures and actually looked at the layers of ice stuck on the front of the engines on the fan blades and gone, whoa, that's huh. actually an impressive amount of uh, ice. Wow. That is impressive. I've never seen it myself, but I, I hear that that's one of the, one of the, um, uh, conditions that you see or look for uh, for ice crystal icing when you're up at a very high altitude and the temperature is way below where you know water should be able to exist but all of a sudden you're seeing these water droplets on your windscreen yeah the i mean there's still a lot awful lot about meteorology we're learning i find it remarkable that we've been doing this job uh, you know we've all been aviating as a as a race for um you know a uh, hundred years and uh, yet we are still got a huge amount to learn about what's going on in the atmosphere we work in every day. And that is such a thin layer of uh, air that surrounds the world. There's so much going on in it. I'm amazed that we still aren't exactly certain of uh, what's happening day to day. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to say this. I mean, you know, sitting back for just a second to the pilots in Buffalo. Um, 
we can Monday morning quarterback all we want, but in the end of the day, the pilots did a fantastic job oh, yeah. getting the airplane onto the ground. So my hat's off to those guys for doing such a great job. Now, as far as the ice crystal and in the atmosphere we work in, you know, it, it, it we have a doctor sitting on the panel, and quite honestly, if you look at any doctor practice or medical practice. It's exactly that, a practice. It's not an exact science, and they're always learning as well and in, in always trying to perfect their art. So it, it, it's very much like what we're doing. I mean, we're, we learn every day. We, we, we practice our art and, and try to, to understand it better every day so that we can become, uh, you know, safer operation, better pilots, and, and uh, you know, teach, teach the, the, the folks coming up through the ranks because, Listen, I mean, 100 years ago, they didn't have engineering ice. They didn't have any type of engine, you know, they didn't have an engine, you know, any wing ice or anything like that. So, you know, it's, it, it is a continuation, continual process of, of improving. Yeah, yeah. And I seem to remember someone uh, reminding me that the longer they've been in aviation, the more they realized they had to learn. So it's true. like any profession, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well. Great discussion, folks. And uh, now it's time for the best part of the show, of course. It's our feedback. Captain, incoming message. I said our feedback. Actually, your feedback that you send to us for us to try to answer. And Corey, Now your feedback belongs to us. Yes, it does. Sorry. <laughs> Corey writes, hi, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Miami Rick, and the rest of the APG community. My name is Corey, and this is my first time sending in feedback, so I hope I got the intro right. I am also writing this on a phone, so I hope it comes out okay. Yes, it did. Thank you, Corey. I'm a new listener starting this month, and this was uh, in April of uh, this year. Love the podcast. Listen to it about three a day um, on during my average seven-hour flight time. And he said, cue the syndrome music. So that means I have to find that. So. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a APG syndrome. No pills gonna kill my ear. I got a APG syndrome. All right. He says, I've been flying for the past two years, starting in fast track program that has taken me from no time to CFI, MEI, CFI, single, oh, CF double I, MEI, CFI, single engine in less than a year. And he puts in parentheses, scary. I'm currently nearing my ATP minimums of 1500 hours in less than two months. After finishing with the same school that I attended, I began to instruct with them and I felt that my skills were slowly fading due to lack of use as I was just occupying the right seat and burning holes in the pattern and dodging the occasional A320 coming into KTTN. That felt good to get off my chest. Sorry, Captain Nick, but not really. Yes, we have... Uh, so I packed my bags and moved to West Texas to fly for a company that inspects oil fields at 500 feet AGL. Yes, we have a low-level waiver to fly over nothing but dirty. It's a fun job, and I average about 130 hours a month, and my hand-flying skills are far ahead of what I could imagine, and I find it very beneficial. I was just wondering, what do you guys and lady think about most pilots having to resort to obtaining their hours as instructors and have no true hand-flying experience with flying the plane unless necessary? 
I also find it strange that I need so many hours to get just an entry-level Charter 135 job, but I can instruct with nothing more than the certification. Doesn't seem like much experience will be available to the newly minted CFI to fall back on. Does this 15-hour rule really improve pilot skill or just delay their entry into the regionals, although some experience are, experiences are gained, such as decision-making and leadership, which are very important? Good question, Corey. Um, uh, let's see. Also, Dr. Steph, I will be starting systems training this year, and my future regional, who already hired me, yay, has its training location in Charlotte. I'm a huge gym rat, so my suggestions of a gym would be appreciated, or so any suggestions of a gym would be appreciated, even though I do not think I will have a life at the time, <laughs> although an IPA meetup might be nice, a nice study break. Thanks again, Corey. And then he says, P.S., not B.S., <laughs> that's what Captain Nick would say. He says, P.S., Boeing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not going to hear from Captain Nick right away. No, gonna... no, he's vomiting. Oh, good. Corner, I think. Yes. <laughs> good, 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 good. I'm stonking. Dang it. Okay. He's still here. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So what what do you think about what? So it, what he's saying basically is it's kind of crazy that this 1500 hour rule to get a 135 or 121 job. But the guys that are going out there and instructing people, you know, the certified flight instructors don't have any such hourly requirement and uh is this does this make any well, sense uh, you know what the, there's the uh, theory with the uh, with the teaching and that is that's the last step of understanding and and being able to um apply your skills is if you can teach what you know then you're at the top top level so mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think the 1,500 hours, this is just my personal opinion and completely only my opinion because I'm in the civilian world. But I really think, you know, it, it's a direct result of the Buffalo crash. Yeah. Um, it, it's a culmination of everybody just getting fed up. I think it's a little, I think it's a little ridiculous personally um, because when you get to the regional level then or, or 135, you have to have certain structure uh, check rides and training that you have to be able to prove yourself and you know as was mentioned earlier either you're, you're a pilot or you're a captain or you're not i mean if you can fly an airplane then you should be able to get through training if you can't fly an airplane then th- then you shouldn't be able to get through training and, and, and that captain on and god rest his soul um on the uh, buffalo crash had a lot of problems so when he had a lot of problems, well, they kept on pushing him through and pushing him through. And, and somebody should just put the kibosh on and say, well, listen, you know, you get some issues here. You get us, we, either you become a better pilot or you need to find something else to do. So I, I don't necessarily agree with the 1,500 hours. Um, the flight instructing route, you know what, to be honest with you, Corey, uh, you know, number one, congratulations. Uh, welcome to the wonderful world of flying. Getting hired at a regional is, a, you know, a, a significant step after you took the big step to go forward with your training. Um, but I, I, I'm, I think really being able to teach somebody else how to be a pilot uh, really is a, a, a good learning experience for a pilot, even though you don't have hands-on experience. You're watching other people and teaching them how to not 
do things improperly. So you have a full understanding of all the procedures in your mind, which then turns into motor memory and allows you to be a better pilot. So I, you know, I, I flight instructed, I flew parachute jumpers. I, you know, I have my own airplane. So I had all that experience with having my hands on the controls and teaching people. So, you know, there's got to be a balance there. But your skills aren't going to suffer, I think, in the long run because you're a flight instructor. And, and, and uh, you know, it's really a fantastic way to build time. I just don't agree with the 1,500 hours. I think I think that really needs to be re-examined, re- but I don't think uh, the FAA ever will. Yeah, I think, I think that uh, eventually that will be – it'll have to be – re-examined and probably decreased but uh i understand what they were going for you know because the more time you have flying the more experience you have and experience is golden but uh it doesn't necessarily equally equate to a successful career just based on actual flying hours but uh we we shall see what what do you think steph you're still muted. She's if smiling. I unmute, if I unmute myself, you can hear me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, I think there's quality, and then there's quantity, and I think both are important in terms of learning a skill, learning a profession, learning a craft, learning how to do anything in life, let alone fly an airplane. So you need that quality component of instruction, but then you also need experience to go out there and you know not necessarily make mistakes, but see what happens when you're you're on your own or when you're you know watching others who are are learning how to fly as well i think that's all valuable but i think at some point there's diminishing returns there um you know it's probably more of a uh bell or not a bell curve but it it just that steep learning curve that you initially have is going to level off over time and it will still continue to increase as you have more quantity but if you have the quality initially you may not need all of those 1500 hours to to get to that point well said i agree so well and that's and that's why the fa has established uh, you know ab initial programs or college sure. programs as exceptions to to yep. that 1500 hour because the, you know there's a big difference between going to a 141 school and a part 61 school huge yep. difference and they also big, big recognize, difference. you know, the difference between uh, a military person trained in the military services and the requirement, you know, is is sub- substantially reduced for the number of hours for an yep. ATP. So, you know, I, I, I think that we're all on the same page here, that uh, that's probably something that is going to be looked at in the future and uh, perhaps will be reduced. Yes. Uh, and Corey, um, I will get back to you. Um, with a with an email regarding gyms in Charlotte because Charlotte's it's not a terribly small town. There's a lot of places, so depends on where you're going to be located. Um, but there are plenty of good gyms around town, you know, chains and private places. And we'll definitely meet up for an IPA when you're here. Just let me know when yeah, you're in town. Absolutely, and I'd like to be part of that too. Okay, well, let Jeff know too. <laughs> let yeah. Nick know. Nick let let us all know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why not? And oh, Mark in uh, Lake Norman. Yes. Who was a little yes. upset that we didn't mention that we were getting together, uh, Steph. Uh, sorry, Mark. I know. Sorry. Well, yeah. well, I did respond to him as well. I said we we would let him know the next time uh, yeah. 
you have a reasonable layover. Yeah, but and, you know, we we talked about Mark the whole time, so it would have been kind of embarrassing for awkward, him to be there. Yeah. He did yeah. get back to me about the uh, beer naming contest. Too, oh, cause tell us good. about that. Uh, now I have to go find the email. Well, okay. my my uh, recommendation, which was aviation related, lost out to something about pizza. Uh in the final thing. So they should have took steps. But apparently maybe maybe there's a Dr. Steph IPA in the works as a as a one off in the future. That'd so. be nice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh well anyway, uh thank you, Corey, for the uh, feedback and uh, congratulations on your progress and uh, hopefully we'll be able to share an IPA and Steph can, you know, lift some heavy iron with you sometime. <laughs> Right. Or you plan on being very busy when you go through in, in doc training and first first uh, airline training uh, it's going to be very busy you're going to spend a lot of time studying yep uh let's see seal view sent this in to us and i know how to pronounce his name because he at the very end of his feedback he says oh and my name is pronounced s-e-a-l dash view seal view that's spelled s-i-l-v-i-u and he says, hi, APG crew. I love listening to your shows. And since I only started recently, I'm listening to uh, in a descending order. I'm currently driving a semi truck or as Nick calls it, a lorry uh, on five to seven hour drives. And they come in really handy. I'm not an expert on this. I'm only a sim flyer currently, a 777-200, but looking forward to getting my private pilot certificate and hopefully my ATP later on. As I was listening to Flight 260 of Acme Airlines, I heard the difference in control that Airbus versus Boeing give to pilots, where Airbus restricts control to pilots to a maximum design limit. After watching the Mayday series, I noticed that on rare occasions that the aircraft can exceed its design limits and still survive. I don't remember the exact flight where the crew ignored to fly the 747 after an engine failure and the aircraft rolled and fell 20,000 feet or so. I think that was that uh, Air China um, situation where they had an engine failure. It was on autopilot. And nobody noticed that they had an engine failure. And then finally the autopilot gave up and the thing ended up uh, going into a uncontrolled dive. But they ended up recovering the airplane. Uh, anyway, would that mean that Boeing is leaving that part of unchar- uncharted territory for pilots to explore if the situation calls? Also, I have tried in the sim to descend from flight level 330 with thrust reversers full, flaps full, speed brakes full, landing gear down, and control the speed with the down pitch between 180 and 210 knots to land in a bit less than five minutes. Would that have any use in in an emergency situation? Or are thrust reversers never to be deployed while in or and under any circumstances thanks and looking forward to hearing from you and keep the blue side up and that's again seal view and what do you think captain nick because you're the only one here that's qualified to fly the airbus 330 is that something that you would ever do <laughs> no no okay i had a feeling that would be the answer you'd probably end up uh, getting down at ten thousand feet with most of your airplane missing um <laughs> I'm afraid uh, if you engage all those uh, realistic um, parts of your flight sim program that actually uh, show when things fall off and when wings buckle and uh, bits uh, get bent, 
then you'll probably find that that doesn't work. With all the protections uh, that are in your flight simulator program, it obviously appears that your aircraft will perform perfectly normally. Well, yes, of course, if, if you could practically hang out full flap and put the reverses in and put the gear down, uh, the aircraft would come down pretty damn fast. But fact is that uh, um, the generally the, the, those services are not designed to operate at altitude and um, you're particularly for high altitude you're going to end up with all sorts of additional problems uh, which you hadn't counted from the the standard uh, way of going down on a max rate descent is to uh, um, first of all you select the speed you're at if um uh, and go down at that speed uh, with full air brake. And uh, if um, you don't consider there's any airframe damage, you can increase that speed, and that'll bring the aircraft down a lot faster. Um, if uh, you do think there's a big hole in the airplane, which has caused the depressurization, which is why you're doing an emergency descent, you you can consider reducing the speed and then putting the gear down to give you an additional uh, amount of drag with full speed brake. But um, we uh, wouldn't use reverses. Uh, I mean, they're not going to use work anyway because they don't activate till you've got weight on wheels. Um, we're not going to use the flaps because of possible damage to your wings, um, which you actually need to level off at the bottom. So that's probably not an ideal uh, way to do it. So, uh, yeah, the expert test pilots have looked at it in real airplanes, and those are the two configurations you come down in, uh, obviously with a throttle at idle and full speed brake. And the speed you're flying at, uh, you can come slower uh, if you wish, and if you are sufficiently slow, then you can put the gear down to give you extra drag, um, to a bit like, putting enormous speed brakes uh, on and it'll come down quicker. Um, with regard to this little thing about the uh, 747, um, that's an interesting one. Uh, according to the Airbus flight laws, if that aircraft had been an Airbus and uh, assuming that it was still in normal law at that point, the aircraft would not have rolled inverted. Uh, the uh, aircraft would have prevented it, unless, of course, or would have tried to prevent Unless, of course, uh, there was some other factor uh, which forced that airplane upside down, in which case the flight controls didn't matter whether the pilots got them or the uh, automatic protections are activating them, the airplane will go inverted anyway. So, you know, it doesn't make any difference, quite honestly. Um, so uh, hopefully the Airbus systems would have uh, assisted in, in that uh, accident, but I don't know an awful lot about that, so I don't know exactly uh, in that case what caused that inversion of that Boeing. But yeah, the, the engine failed and the, the autopilot was putting in more and more uh, rudder trim to compensate for the fact that there was asymmetric thrust. And then finally it said, uh, that's all I can do. And now I'm giving up and you have the airplane and the pilots wow. weren't aware that the engine had failed and the autopilot was compensating. And then when the autopilot said, you have the airplane, basically <laughs> it was completely out of trim. The airplane just flipped over, inverted, and lost 20,000 yeah. feet. They and didn't spot they had an engine failure? No. Jeez. No, they didn't. Okay. Yeah. All right. You well, you know, hopefully uh, something would have told them uh, yeah. on any other airplane uh, that uh, they would have had an engine failure. I'm a bit surprised they didn't spot that. There you go. Yes. You know, I, I was just going to say, it, 
if you put a barn door into the airstream, do you think it's going to fly very well? Yeah, so the answer is no. And uh, we cannot on the, the Mad Dog put out the reverses in flight, period. Uh, it's uh, The drag would cause too many control issues. We have control issues on the ground when we put the reverses out with the rudder. So um, we can't. No, I should. I should correct you. We can put we can. the reverses out. Yeah, well, I said that incorrectly. Yeah, we can put them out, but we can't pull too much reverse. No, it wouldn't be a good idea to do it. It would be a yeah, terrible be a idea. idea. Yeah, I, I will say this, though, however, on, on to the uh, putting uh, some barn doors out there. Um, when I was flying a Flatus Porter, which was is, is used for jumpers, uh, we, we fly jumpers. It's a great short takeoff and landing airplane it also can hold uh, nine jumpers and get them up it's a turbo uh, turboprop airplane with a pt6 which mm-hmm. is very common air uh, engine uh it was uh, i would beat the jumpers down to the ground in the in the porter because you can slightly go into beta which is almost like pulling reverse thrust on the uh, pt6 on the uh on the um propeller pitch uh no i'm the uh, porter i i just getting whole thing anyway so yeah the, <laughs> the flattest porter so you know this is the older version that had is a tail dragger um so it you know there are certain aircraft out there you can put flaps in and and go ahead and do that and my descent rate was you know my base to final was at nine thousand feet so that gives you an idea how fast it's coming down but on a on a, on a transport aircraft i don't i don't know I agree with Nick 100%. Not a chance in this world. Yeah. There are very few airplanes that were actually allowed or not restricted to using reverse thrust in flight. I think the DC-8 was one of them, but uh, somebody told me, I never flew the uh, DC-8, but they told me that if you ever did put the reverse thrust out in the DC-8, I think on the inboards, uh, it would be a very uncomfortable thing and uh, you would never want to do it again because of the way it shakes the airplane, but uh, uh, there was not, it was not a restricted maneuver on there, that airplane. And most of the airplanes we fly, including the mad dog is a restricted. They, they don't, they say, don't do that. I mean, can you? Yeah. It, should you? No. Do we? I mean, I, no. I think the point is one of these descents is flown as an emergency maneuver, but there is, uh, there is, a level of urgency that doesn't require you to risk um, destroying the uh, aircraft while you're doing it. So uh, Dana looks like he's having a heart attack over there. Well, we're looking at your picture. You've turned into a chimpanzee. I don't know if you've realized oh, you that. But, um, well done. I just didn't know if you guys were watching or not. <laughs> yeah, we were so, watching. Um, <laughs> so uh, now the fact is that uh, you do not, do not want to risk, uh, uh, you know, wrecking the airplane for what is a per- should be a perfectly safe maneuver that gets everyone down to a reasonable altitude all alive and well. Um, there's the, the way we fly emergency descents, um, achieves that the uh, passenger. Can we go back to the monkey, please. Yeah, <laughs> the um, I thought that it's might a, it's a typical, typical, 
typical Airbus pilot, isn't it? There, there you go. Uh, it was actually given to me by a Boeing pilot. It was a self-portrait. <laughs> well, you know, that's all you have to be to be able to fly an uh, Airbus. So. There you go. Oh, um, but uh, no, uh, if you get the passengers down uh, to suitable altitude safely, you've achieved the job. They've got 20 minutes of oxygen. There is no reason to risk wrecking the airplane and possibly killing everyone on board trying to achieve that. So trying to generate a rate of descent that's so huge that, uh, you know, you uh, get everyone down in five minutes is actually, to a certain extent, pointless. You've got time to do it safely, and uh, we do it within the limits that we we do so that we can get everyone on without bursting their eardrums, without, you know, bunting the airplane so everyone bounces off the ceiling, without risking ripping bits off. Very good point. So, Captain Nick. Yes, Jeff. Alex, Alex has a question. He said, I was just curious how it came to be that you live and work in England, but your father lives in Western Australia. As an Australian, I was wondering, as I have never met someone who permanently moved here from England, only the odd backpacker. Cheers. Love the show. So what what could you say well, to Alex? That's, a, that's, an easy, that's an easy question to answer, old chap. I, uh, my father is Australian, so I am half Australian. Uh, my mother's English. So uh, my father, um, born and bred in Australia. So he, obviously, at the end of the war, um, when he finally uh, uh, left the UK and returned to uh, Australia, that was his home. That's where he returned. And um, I have um, sort of uh, Australian citizenship, which allows me to hold two passports. So I have a, I'm a dual national. Uh, I have both Australian and, uh, well, I, I'm technically referred to as a, a British subject and an Australian citizen. So that's the way that works. There you go, Alex. Mystery solved. Um Joe, I mentioned Joe. He came to the meetup last night in uh, Washington, D.C. He is from Buffalo. He said, really enjoyed the Wings Over Pittsburgh meetup, as we all did. Thank you, Joe. Since many of us APGers are, are sports fans also, wondering if you could talk about how a few ex-players of various sports made the transition from playing from the playing arena to being pilots. For example, ex-NHL or uh, National Hockey League. Uh, Al Secord, is that the way you pronounce his name? Secord, Secord, now flies for American and ex-Buffalo Bills and Falcons center Jim Richer, who played in the glory days or non-glory days, depends on how you look at it, of the Bills' four Super Bowl lo- uh, losses, now flies for American also. I'm sure that there are others as well, just those examples come to mind. I think it's neat that these men achieved not only one dream of many, but two to play on a professional sports team and become pilots. I'd say they've lived the dream twice. And again, that's from uh, Joe in Buffalo. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, there are probably many more that uh, uh, probably many that we don't know about that uh, have ended up uh, in successful sports careers and have you know ended up being uh, career airline pilots. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know I can think of. Yeah, go on, Steph. Of one that comes to mind. Um, I think he was in a movie, too. Um, he played basketball, I think, in Los Angeles. Tall guy. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, maybe, that's right. Was his name. <laughs> <laughs> he was a 
Over. Yes. Over. <laughs> over. Over. Yeah. Who is Roger? Roger. Yes. Huh? Roger Murdoch. What? Roger Murdoch. But he was over, <laughs> under, under, over. Yes. Oh, uh, but do you know any others uh, like real ones stuff? No. No. Oh. No. Sorry. Well, Sorry, Joe. That's all I got. I've flown with, uh, I've flown with a couple. Um, two uh, international rugby uh, stars, uh, brothers, actually, Rory Underwood, who played for England, and his brother, Tony. Uh, Tony, uh, when he finished his rugby career, became an airline pilot, and uh, he's uh, flown for uh, Easy. He flew for Acme Red for a while, and now I believe he's out in Emirates. In fact, we bumped into each other. Um and the queue to get through immigration at JFK only a few months back. And uh, his brother, uh, Rory, a uh, brilliant rugby player, he was uh, in the Air Force and uh, he was due to come through his flying training when I was an instructor on Hawks. And um, uh, unfortunately, he started, but he couldn't finish, as it were, because uh, he was required to dash off and play more international rugby matches. So he got moved on to a different course. I didn't end up flying with him. But uh, he did come out to Australia when I was there on uh, the F-18, and um, he was with a Rugby Lions uh, team. And he came and visited the base and uh, showed him around the aircraft and uh, gave him dinner and uh, became uh, firm friends. We've kept in touch ever since, which is rather nice. He's another great guy. They were fantastic uh, sporting family, those guys. Well, let's move on. Uh, thank you again, Joe, in Buffalo for that feedback. Welcome aboard EasyJet Flight 910, nonstop service to Charlotte, North Carolina. A uh, little update from the flight deck up here. We uh, have a little problems with the having some problems with the engines. Uh, for those passengers who are too stupid to understand, what I'm talking about is those big whirly spinning things out there hanging underneath the wings. Uh, we can't get one of them started. There's about a 50-50 shot that uh, the mechanic, who I'm pretty sure doesn't know any basic math, uh, is going to get this thing fixed in the next couple of hours. So let's take a vote uh, whether or not... Uh, uh, you think I should get a raise for having to deal with all you stupid passengers? Raise your uh, raise your hand if you think I should uh, get a raise. Thank you, thank you. All right. So uh, while we try to while we try to fix this uh, engine, a mechanic is, is going to get out this uh, huge hammer. The smaller hammer wasn't doing the job, so he's got to get out the big hammer and bang on the side of this engine. Try to get that old whirly thing starting to whirl there, so we can shoot this aluminum can up in the sky and get you to your destination so uh, again thank you for flying easy jet and we know you had a choice and i don't know why you chose us but uh you're strapped in your seat now too late no refunds uh flight attendants repair the cabin or take off <laughs> so of course that was uh in our last episode we were talking about the uh easy jet captain that supposedly came on and said we have a 50-50 chance that the engine's going to run for takeoff or work for takeoff. So, Miami Hick, brilliant. Thank you. Very good. As usual, brilliant. Yeah. Unbelievable. Always. I didn't know that EasyJet uh, flew to Charlotte. That's well, I think, yeah, actually. that's uh, something new. I'm surprised okay, you didn't good. know that. Yeah. Behind <laughs> the times, I guess. Uh, maybe maybe not EasyJet, but uh, something similar. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, let's see. Let's continue with uh, this. Some more audio feedback from our friend down under, Luke, the Flying Kiwi. Hey, APG crew, this is uh, the Flying Kiwi. Um, just thought I'd check in again. It's been a wee while. Um, wanted to uh, cover off again, I hope we're not abusing the subject too much, about um, pilots and pilot depression and mental illness. Um, I thought it was a really great discussion, and I, and I think... Um, Captain Nick and Stephen Ivey for being so honest about it. It's it's really good and it really does need to be talked about. Um, I kind of want to cover the conversation from a from a different point of view today and talk about the the regulatory authorities that 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 um, that make up these rules because I've had a bit of a bit of an interesting little bit of research and an EMS with this. Um, I think I might have mentioned earlier that uh, a friend of mine passed away rather suddenly. Um, this affected me more than I, than I had expected. Um, you know, I've been having to do some pretty nasty things like help his widow pack his stuff up and pull down his computer systems and do all the IT stuff around there about that and um, tell people your uh, passwords, people, because it's a pain in the ass trying to <laughs> trying to hack into your systems when you when you're not around. Um, no, really, don't. That's a bad idea. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't feeling great, and um, talking to a few friends, you know, having a great open and honest discussion about mental illness, and that's really it's really interesting when you do that because all sorts of sort of stuff comes out of the woodwork. And I found out that I was pretty much one of the only one of my friends who actually wasn't on medication for something or other, and I, I thought that was rather interesting. And I, I was I was given some advice to hey maybe maybe you know to get through this period maybe you do want to take some medication, and I said okay look. I have a pilot medical, so I do have to be careful. I can't just go and take stuff, and, and I need to see my ME about this. Um, so I did some research, and I was surprised at the attitude of not only our regulatory authority, the CAA here, but of many others around the world when I started doing more and more research into this. Um, you would expect after the German Wings episode that many of the regulatory authorities would sit down and go, hey, you know, pilots are humans too and they do have mental illness. You know, they get the flu just like everybody else, so why don't they, you know, get depressed and, and have anxiety? Um, and you would think there was some sort of, you know, reasoned discussion about this and they would say, well, you know, here's a, here's a plan of how we, you know, can keep pilots flying but keep them, you know, managed and, and manage their medication and, you know, manage how they're feeling and, and you know, still keep them in the cockpit. Um, you know, some sort of proactive stance on that. And I found almost unilaterally that this isn't the case. Certainly in the, in, in the CIA in New Zealand, if you present with any um, illness that requires medication, they will yank your medical, um, regardless of whether it being class one, two or three. Um, in fact, they're actually quite verbose about certain um, medications that they they, well, they they pretty much ban everything, but they do come out and, and um, talk about a few medications. Venlafaxine being one of them, which is a common drug um, for for anxiety here, uh, which Doctor Steph might know about. Um, in fact, the only um, regulatory authority that had any kind of tolerance, as far as I could see, for any kind of um, Ill, um, any kind of medication was the FAA. And the FAA um, have, a, have actually a really great website, and they, they actually come straight out and say these medica medications are okay, um, you know, with with supervision. These are not, um, which is which is great. Um, but um, my regulatory authority believe that um, they they will help you through it, um, but they'll yank your medical while they do it 
and you will have to pass a barrage of tests um, to prove that you are fit to fly again, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, you know, I know most pilots are pretty responsible people. You know, we have a good laugh and stuff like that, but we're all business in the cockpit. Um, you know, we know what the stakes are if we make a mistake, you know, more so than than any other mode of transport. You know, if, if, if you run out of fuel, you, you can't just pull it over and, and go get a can of gas. You know, you're going to have to put that bad boy down somewhere. So we take these things pretty seriously, and I know that if, if you were a pilot, and you didn't feel very well, you'd probably be fess up and go to your ME and say, look, hey, I need to be taken off the flight register, I'm not feeling very good, and, and that sort of thing. But we're also humans too, and um, there are some idiot pilots out there. <laughs> um, some people say that I'm one of them, but, um, you know, there are people who, like the German Wings pilot, um, will not um, fess up and, and they will continue to, to fly and, and hide their condition or, or, or medication. Um, and, and I think there needs to be a bit of a shake-up about this sort of thing and, and, and the regulatory authorities really need to look about how they can manage pilots while still flying um, with, with, with um, CBT or, or some sort of medication programme. Um, there's a quote from a PP Rune um, article I was reading where a guy had his medical yanked and it really resonated with me because he said, if, if, I, if I wasn't depressed before, I sure am now. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's got to be some sort of, you know, give and, give and take, um, depending on how bad your symptoms are, I would imagine. Um, I'd be really interested to, to see what you guys think about that, um, whether pilots should be kept on a flying ro- roster if, if they're um, managed in some sort of way. Um, it'd be really interesting to hear your, hear your take on that. Um, the other thing I want to bring up was the, the pronunciation of that French aircraft company, Dassault, as we, as we called it, uh, the Dassault Falcon. Um, this made me laugh because I was roundly brought up by a French lady about my pronunciation of Dassault after um, having an amusing incident at the 2K where I was watching a guy washing a Falcon, uh, Falcon's windscreen with a bottle of Evian water, which I thought was incredibly posh. And we went to the terminal, had a good laugh, and a, a French lady in our party was horrified at our um, mispronunciation of, of Dassault, and she said it is pronounced Dassault. So it is basically da, sol, but the T disappears, and I'm quoting it directly, the, let the T disappear into the back of your mouth. <laughs> so it's da, sol. Um, so there you go. That's how to pronounce that. Um, this is not the first time I've stuffed up French pronunciation. I once lost $50 um, insisting that um, the famous, famous French champagne Moet was pronounced Moet, not Moet, which, of course, um, it is actually pronounced Moet, and I lost that 50 bucks. Bugger. Um, last thing, uh, last but not least, um, the plane tails, again, um, fantastic. Brilliant. Captain Nick, um, you, I, I know quite a bit about um, the D-Day air operations, having a few relatives involved in that, um, but you brought up a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know about, which is great, and that's what I love about these plane tiles. You, you do a lot of research, and that really comes up. Um, I did have to laugh at your um, your B-52 um, your B-52 story, because I actually um, know a little bit about that little nuclear almost accident, and yeah, it was really interesting to, to hear um, a bit more about that. That was that was, that was pretty cool. Um, the the big, ugly, fat fella. See what I did there? I said fella. Um, 
there was another quote from a magazine article I was reading a while ago that said, um, just like me, the buff has grown fat, old. Um, we have grown fat, old and grey together, which I thought that was pretty pretty funny, obviously, talking about the all of the new modifications that have gone to the B-52, making it heavier. Of course, it's old, and of course, they all painted grey these days <laughs> instead of camo. So I thought fat, grey and old together was pretty funny. Um, anyway... Uh, thanks for the podcast again, guys. Really good to, to hear from you. Um, I, ha- I am hanging out every week. It has been ridiculous. Oh, actually, talking about APG um, syndrome, you guys have really messed with my brain. I was at a conference the other day and someone mentioned going green. And I kid you not, they said going green. And all I could freaking hear for the next two hours was that bloody song. <laughs> You're going green. Work. Oh, God drove me nuts and I thought oh I really do have APG syndrome like quite badly anyway thanks again Talons Douglas Flying Kiwis out we're going green we're going green we're gonna take care of the earth we're going green we don't know what you're talking about we're going green <laughs> Great to hear from the flying ki- kiwi in uh, down under land. Uh, I guess he's in uh, New Zealand, a beautiful country. And he, uh, he, Nick, he um, kind of talked about that depression talk that we've been talking about, uh, discussing in the last several episodes and what you know he posed the pre- the question what do you think about keeping somebody that's going through some kind of a um uh, uh, a protocol or whatever the word is for actually keeping them on the flying roster it, it's an interesting one I, I am by no means an expert i think just because you have suffered doesn't mean you know everything about the condition and uh, how it affects other people. I think every uh, person is an individual and it affects everybody in in its own way. So I think it's very difficult to write a protocol that would cover every eventuality. Uh, my feeling is that the authorities, uh, particularly for um, commercial pilots, are being quite sensibly cautious. Um, the drugs that are on offer, yes, they are commonly used by a lot of people but they don't affect the same the the same drug doesn't affect everyone the same way so uh, for that reason also I think it's quite sensible since it does change it's there to change the chemistry in your brain back to a normal more normal levels and allow you to get back on an even keel i think it's quite sensible that uh, you shouldn't necessarily be flying uh until you're either extremely stable on a drug or you're off it again and a suitable time period has passed since you stopped taking it and have uh, reacclimatized uh, to not having that uh, extra chemical in your system. Um, I don't think that taking treatment like CBT is anything that should necessarily keep you off uh, off a flying uh, medical, keeping you away from flying. Um, but again, each individual needs to be assessed. 
And uh, considering the responsibility we hold as commercial pilots, I don't see any problem that with there being a lot of hoops to jump through. I jumped through mine and uh, successfully got back to flying. Um, but to a certain extent, I'm grateful that I had to jump through those hoops because it satisfied me in my own mind that I was fully fit to go back to doing my job. And I have absolutely no concerns about uh, taking on the responsibility of the job I do. Uh, I think perhaps the standards for people who do general aviation uh, would be quite right to be a little less. But uh, I think um, the medical profession is to a certain extent feeling its way. And uh, there's not an awful lot of data uh, they're available for pilots and how it affects them. Uh, so um, I would like to see people rush into it. However, he does make some great points, as always. He's a very thoughtful bloke. And uh, he um, he brings up some interesting subjects. And I'd love to hear uh, a professional doctor's opinion, Steph. <laughs> well, lucky I was thinking of things to respond to all of this with just now. Uh, but I think ultimately what it comes down to, because you know, we know, and you brought it up or someone brought it up earlier. I think it was actually Dana. It's, uh, you know, medicine is sometimes as much an art as it is a science. Like you said, Nick, no two people are the same, respond the same way to the same types of medical problems. Um, you know, it can all be classified under depression, but that's going to be something different for everyone that goes through it in terms of how it makes them feel, um, behave and react to situations. They're going to respond differently to these medications that we have to quote unquote treat the problem. Um, and I think what it ultimately comes down to on the part of the regulatory um, bodies is liability. And they need to make sure that they minimize those liabilities as much as possible, especially if they're putting someone back in command or up front in a commercial aircraft where they do have a lot of responsibility and a lot of other people who depend on their ability to operate the aircraft safely. So you know, until they can be sure that that liability has been minimized as much as possible. And it's unfortunately not a one size fits all thing. However, there has to be some sort of guideline for, you know, whether it's the AMEs or whoever's treating them to take a look at it and say, okay, well, you have, you know, here's the algorithm. You have this problem, you're on this medication. We know that most people have to wait at least this time frame before we can reassess them to make sure that things are okay. That's not going to be true for everyone. So some people are going to, you know, rightfully feel like they're being or the system is, you know, abusing them or, or, you know, not meeting their needs. And then there's going to be people who need a lot longer than that. And that's why they have to have that period of reassessment. So I think liability is the big issue there. You know, I have something to say on this and, and mm-hmm. what I have to say about, well, no, no way. Dana doesn't have something to say. Um, Listen, this 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 mental health issue, not only in the aviation community, uh, especially in this country, uh, is a huge issue because, well, I have to sit back quite a few years. My father was a psychologist. He had his own clinic, had his own uh, business, and unfortunately, the funding uh, dried up on mental health. So it's always been kind of put in the back burner, especially in this country. Uh, a lot of a lot of the people like the gentleman that I gave uh, gave the money to in, in the street in Baltimore. 
you know, a lot of people that are homeless are people that have severe mental health issues and they get bounced around and the insurance companies don't want to deal with them. Then, you know, the, the medical community can only deal with them so long in the emergency rooms. Police can't deal with them. So they, they're kind of lost. And, and, and I'm going a little bit deeper into this than I think than we need to. But I, I, the reason why I'm even bringing it up is because there's a stigma. There's a stigma with it, and it makes it, uh, you know, if you're diagnosed with with something, it, it it's it it's not not a great thing that people look upon. So I I, I really commend Captain Nick for just talking about this and, and so eloquently uh, talked about it because it's a serious issue that we in in not only in the aviation community but we as a human race need to talk more about and not put a stigma on it. Uh, it, it's, it's, it isn't, it's not a, uh, a controllable thing. It's not what people want to do. It's, a, it's for the most part, a chemical imbalance within, within the brain. And that is, it, it, it's, it's hard for people to deal with that issue when you're confronted with it. So, um, it can be controlled and, and with proper treatment and proper diagnosis, people can, can, can really do well. Uh, even if 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 they have to be on medication and and uh, pilots in general, we we try to be uh, problem solvers and fix everything. But sometimes we forget to fix ourselves, and we need to focus on making sure that we're healthy when we show up to work. And we can't let the oh my god, I might you know might not be able to pay my mortgage this month because I need to go to work, and and, and you know let that build up and it becomes a problem over time. So. Uh, you know, if if the issues there have it addressed, and and then, you know, life will continue on. As you know, Nick is a perfect example, and so eloquently, as I said earlier, it it it, it can be addressed, it can be successfully treated, and people can become better because of it. Appreciate that. Thanks very much, Dana. Very it's good true. points. I mean, it's it, it's it's very very true. Uh, Flying Kiwi did bring up some other points, which uh, were about plain tales. So appreciate that, uh, Miel. Uh, those uh, World War II things. Uh, we always try and think up a new uh, idea for that. But I, uh, I enjoy doing it. It's a labour of love, as they say. You do a fantastic job of it. The old pilots' plain tales. A load of hot air. As I'm sure we all remember, the first men to ever sustain flight in a flying machine were the Montgolfier brothers. After subjecting a duck, a sheep and a rooster to a trip in one of their hot air balloons, then called a globe aerostatique, Etienne Montgolfier took the brave step of climbing into the basket of a balloon suspended over a fire and was carried safely aloft in October 1783, thereby becoming the first ever human to lift off the face of the earth. Whilst powered, heavier-than-air aircraft were still in their infancy, machines that used the qualities of lighter-than-air gases to fly were becoming ever more sophisticated and popular. When talking about such craft, it's important to get our terminology correct. A balloon is an unpowered aerostat, which is the generic name for lighter-than-air craft. An airship 
is a free-flying aerostat, sometimes called a dirigible balloon, that can be steered. And these are divided into three groups, the rigid, semi-rigid, and non-rigid types, also referred to as blimps. A rigid airship has an outer framework or skin with lifting bags inside, a little like the airline pilot guys show. The outer envelope keeps its shape, even if the gas bags are deflated. A semi-rigid airship has a keel or truss supporting the main envelope along its length that helps it to hold its shape whilst aloft. The non-rigid airships have no internal structure or keel and rely on the pressure of the lifting gas to give strength and shape to the envelope. The lifting gas used within an aerostat varies enormously in efficiency and safety. The Montgolfier gas was the component within the smoke that rose from a fire, giving a lifting property, or at least that's what Joseph Montgolfier believed. In reality, it's just the reduction in density that heat gives the air, which causes it to rise. Hydrogen is the lightest of all gases, and because there is no need to warm a gas balloon, it will stay airborne for a lot longer. It became the gas of choice for many aerostats, but hydrogen itself is flammable, and after several major disasters, which we will soon discuss, it fell out of use. Coal gas comprises a mix of methane and other gases, and is about half as light as hydrogen. However, it is cheap and easily available. When the heavy carbon monoxide element was reduced and it was mixed with hydrogen to aid its lifting power, it became more useful. Helium is the only lifting gas that is both non-flammable and non-toxic. What's more, it has about 92% of the lifting power of hydrogen. Helium is unusual amongst the lifting gases as it is a chemical element and is first in the group of noble gases. Although it is abundant in the universe, it's rare on Earth. Most helium is created by the natural radioactive decay of thorium and uranium. Because of its cryogenic properties, helium is essential for use with superconducting magnets, such as those used in the MRI scanners, the growing of silicon wafers used in electronics, and other essential tasks. The largest supply of helium comes from natural gas extracted in the United States, and much was held in reserve, but since 2005, this reserve has been depleted and sold off cheaply. It is now expected to be mostly exhausted by 2021. The early 1900s were the heydays of the airships. No other aircraft had the lifting power, range or flexibility of the large airships, and governments around the world invested great sums in these early leviathans of the air. The greatest was perhaps Count Zeppelin, who spent all his energies in creating a massive airship industry in Germany. Alberto Santos Dumont built his machines in France. 
Thomas Scott Baldwin did the same in America, and Stanley Spencer was one of the early British builders, creating his airships from the funds he made from advertising baby food. Soon these vast machines were breaking records. The airship Santos Dumont No. 6 won the Deutsch Prize by flying from the beautiful gardens of the Parc St. Cloud round the Eiffel Tower and back again in less than 30 minutes. On one of his early attempts, Alberto's craft leaked gas and descended into Paris, entangling itself with the famous Hotel Trocadero, leaving him hanging precariously on the side. Even his winning flight wasn't without incident when he suffered an engine failure. He clambered out of his gondola without a safety harness to successfully restart it. It was, however, the First World War that created the impetus for much of the airship's development. The prospect of airships bombing cities and navies was first proposed by the writer H.G. Wells in his 1908 book, The War in the Air. But the Italians were the first to try it for real when they used them in the Italian-Turkish War. However, it was the Germans who invested the most in this modern technology, as they thought they had found the perfect counter to the dominance of the Royal Navy and a way to strike Britain itself during World War I. Raids on England began in 1915 and reached a peak a year later. But whilst the Zeppelins proved to be a terrifying weapon, they were remarkably inaccurate. Navigation, target selection and bomb aiming proved to be difficult in the best of conditions. The physical damage they did was insignificant, but they did cause a diversion of resources in a defence effort. Since they used the flammable hydrogen gas, they proved vulnerable to incendiary and explosive ammunition, but many more crashed in accidents than were actually shot down. At the end of the war, the Treaty of Versailles prevented Germany from building large military airships, and only Britain, the United States, Italy, the Soviet Union and Japan were seriously operating them. It was the development of heavier-than-air aircraft that really sounded the death knell of the airship as a realistic transport option. That and some high-profile accidents. The USS Akron was one of the more remarkable rigid airships, as she was the first purpose-built flying aircraft carrier. Suspended beneath the Akron's vast body were F-9C Sparrowhawk fighter aircraft, which could be both launched and recovered while she was in flight. She and her sister ship, the Macon, were only 18 feet shorter than the Hindenburg, and they were powered by eight Maybeck 560 horsepower engines mounted inside the hull, with drive shafts turning external swivelling propellers. Filled with six and a half million cubic feet of helium, she could lift nearly 74 metric tons. That's over 160,000 pounds of weight. Her total dead weight was nearly 110,000 metric tons, a mere 242,356 pounds. 
The heart of the ship was an aircraft hangar, large enough to accommodate five sparrowhawks. These aircraft could be lowered, engines running and pilot on board, through a T-shaped hole in the bottom of the ship. When ready, the pilot released the hook on the top of his aircraft from the lowering trapeze and he was on his way. On his return, the pilot flew his sparrowhawk, with his skyhook open, up to the trapeze from below and it would automatically lock on after which he could be recovered into the hangar to be refuelled and rearmed. The Akron had a successful career until the evening of the 3rd of April 1933. With a complement of 76, which included Rear Admiral Moffat and his guest, the Vice President of Mack Trucks, they were over Barnsgate Light in New Jersey, when they were hit by severe weather, and since the low-pressure air around them was causing their altimeters to overread, they were lower than expected. Despite ordering full speed and dropping ballast, a downdraft forced the ship down. In gusts so severe that their rudder cables were torn away, the lower fin of the Akron hit the water and was ripped off. The airship broke up rapidly and sank into the stormy Atlantic. Only three survived. Being an airship, nobody thought to give the crew life jackets. Meanwhile, in Britain, the Air Ministry was building a ship to compete with the Graf Zeppelin, which had just successfully flown around the world. The R101 was conceived and built as an experimental platform, a chance to try new and innovative techniques, but political forces insisted the ship be operated as a fully capable commercial vessel. Unfortunately, problems inherent in any experimental design were never fixed, and flight trials were sacrificed in favour of VIP sightseeing. What's more, the ship's officers were pressed into making a flight to India, for which the airship was not ready. Without regard to weather, and with a load of fuel and unnecessary cargo that exceeded the ship's capabilities. On board was the Air Minister, Lord Thompson, with his personal baggage, which included crates of silverware, china, champagne and a carpet, as well as his 20-year-old valet. To compensate for this unexpected weight, the R101 had to drop most of its emergency ballast at the mast just to depart. The ship's covering was deteriorating and needed to be replaced, but in the rush to fly to India, the most important sections of rotted fabric were left in place. Indeed, the R101 had never even been flown at full speed or on all engines or in bad weather. However, on October the 4th, 1930, the ship was dispatched to fly into a known storm at a time of year noted for bad weather, and despite the recommendation of airship officers and metrology experts, they continued ahead. After struggling to maintain altitude over England and the Channel, 
The ship crossed into France, where rain and wind damaged the unrepaired fabric at the nose of the ship and broke open gas bags in the bow, releasing the ship's lifting gas. The overloaded and underballasted ship settled into a hillside in northern France, and moments later the hydrogen gas erupted into flame. The fire destroyed the ship in minutes and killed most of those on board, including Lord Thompson. In the wake of the R101 disaster, the privately built R100 was dismantled and Britain never again operated a rigid airship. Designed and built by Italian engineers in 1919, the Roma was purchased from the Italian government in early 1921 for the U.S. Army Air Service. Its $200,000 price was considered a bargain, but flaws soon became apparent. Army officials eager to maintain the Army's progress in dirigible flight, ordered the latest high-powered American motors to be fitted. The Air Service scheduled a test flight for the new engines on February 21, 1922. The next morning's Richmond Times-Dispatch carried front-page news that the Roma had crashed and burned during the test flight over Norfolk, killing 34 of the 45 people on board. Accounts of survivors and witnesses indicated that the flight started well. The drone of the powerful new engines caught the attention of hundreds on the ground as the airship sailed from Hampton's Langley Field towards Norfolk. The Roma faltered shortly before 2pm. The ship nosed down steeply, said a report. As the Roma neared the ground, witnesses saw the crew members throwing equipment, tools and personal belongings overboard in frantic efforts to slow the descent. The airship hit power lines, exploded in flames and rolled over, trapping men riding in the keel's cabin above the burning gas bags with its 11 hydrogen-filled cells. Just as the Roma neared the wires, two men were seen to leap said the Associated Press, as the stricken flaming monster writhed in her first death agony, ten more dropped from the doors or ports or through holes they tore in the fabric. The crash was believed to be caused by the failure of Roma's box rudder system, which allowed it to manoeuvre in tight areas. A total of 34 were killed, Eight were injured and three escaped unharmed. The event marked the greatest disaster in American aeronautic history at the time. By the mid-30s, only Germany still pursued airship development. The Zeppelin Company continued to operate the Graf Zeppelin between Frankfurt and Brazil, so work was started on an airship specifically designed to operate across the Atlantic. The Hindenburg was built, and it completed a very successful season in 1936, carrying passengers in luxurious comfort between New Jersey and Germany. The Hindenburg disaster occurred on May 6, 1937, when the airship caught fire with 97 people on board, 
and was destroyed during an attempt to dock with its mooring mast at Naval Air Station Lakehurst. Remarkably, there were only 35 fatalities, 13 passengers and 22 crewmen. One worker on the ground was also killed, raising the final death toll to 36. The disaster was the subject of spectacular newsreel coverage, photographs and Herbert Morrison's eyewitness report from the landing field, all of which were broadcast the next day. It's right, and it's rising. It's rising terrible. Oh, my, get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting in the flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks believe that this is terrible. This is the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's like 20, oh, four or 500 feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen, the smoke and the flames now, and the flame is rising to the ground, not quite to the morning mass of the human. A variety of hypotheses have been put forward for both the cause of the ignition of its hydrogen lifting gas and the initial source of the ensuing fire, some of which include sabotage and static discharge. This was a disaster which theatergoers could see and hear in newsreels. The Hindenburg disaster shattered public confidence in airships and bought a definitive end to their golden age. The day after the Hindenburg crashed, the Graf Zeppelin landed at the end of its flight from Brazil. This was the last international passenger airship flight. Wow, now you know why plane tales are such a, a popular part of the Airline Pilot Guy show is because Nick does such a great job with uh, the presentation. You're very kind, Jeff. That was a fa fabulous stories or a series of stories. And uh, I wouldn't have really picked up on those if it hadn't been for Micah asking me about the Roma. And if I would do a tale about them, which, of course, was one of the airships that went in and Pardon me. Of course, that got me interested in the whole thing about airships. And uh, um, I, the only thing I seem to remember from uh, my memories of uh, those times was that Barnes Wallace, the famous uh, designer of the bouncing bomb and uh, other wartime inventions, pardon me, he started his life uh, in the design office of uh, airships, the British airships. But um, no, the, um, there are some amazing stories about that period. It's a very short period, really, um, in aviation. They pretty soon discovered how vulnerable they were to the uh, environment around them and how little control they actually had over these huge things. I've always been fascinated with airships, and it's interesting. Um, recently, we're starting to see companies starting to build these things again and, and seeing you know uses for them in today's world. Yeah, I think as long as they stay away from the ground, they're probably not too vulnerable. Yeah. But as we've already seen, that one that looks like uh, someone's buttocks has already managed to shove <laughs> its front end in uh, and on, it, on test flight. So uh, I, I'm not sure how successful they'll be. I think they're great at displaying advertising uh, over American football games. I think you know, it's always going to be very popular. Yeah. And I think they probably have a future in the upper atmosphere, suspending um, perhaps uh, internet 
internet services or radar systems, but uh, I don't think they're ever going to really fulfill the previous dreams of being mass transport machines. I thought it was so cool the uh, the Akron with the uh, you know, like the aircraft carrier, the airborne aircraft carrier concept. I always thought that that was just like amazing oh absolutely you can get on uh, youtube and find some actual footage of these guys trying to connect uh and being released of course is quite easy i mean you just got suspended and then you let go and you dropped up a bit and flew away but (laughs) on these tiny little airplanes they really were midget-sized airplanes trying to connect back up again Onto these trapezes that were hung down below. Oh, looked absolute nightmare. <laughs> looked really hard. Yeah, didn't it wasn't hey. a successful concept. Hey no. guys, yeah. I hate to interrupt, but Ren and, and of yeah. course, ladies, uh, Ren is going to call it quits. He's got an extremely long day. Not only do we get back uh, once we get back tomorrow, he's going to drive down to Sarasota with his family for being. So he's going to call it quits this evening. So he wanted to okay. take an opportunity and say goodnight to everybody. So I'm going to yep. hand over the microphone real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, thank you so much for letting me be a part of your podcast this evening. And uh, uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Uh, pleasure was all ours, Ren. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you could nice uh, hang out Ren. with us. Hope we get a chance to have a few beers with you uh, at some point in the future. Oh, definitely. Well, definitely. That would be great. That'd be yeah, when, when we have the meetup and, and Glenn Towler is coming next month, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah, you're uh, Atlanta. Yep. So uh, I'll, I'll make sure I send the uh, invitation. And more than likely, he'll be working. He's junior in reserve. He's actually junior to me. Ah. And younger than me, too. <laughs> makes me feel. I'd like to point that out. But he's not as good looking. Now. Well, have a lovely evening and safe travels tomorrow. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Mm-hmm. Take care. All right. Uh, well, we see a captain and first officer relationship right there, don't we? <laughs> I think. That, Is that how it goes? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm thinking that uh, maybe this piece of feedback from Radio Roger might be appropriate. So let's let's have a listen. Greetings, Captains Jeff, Nick, and Dana, and Pilot Steph. Jeff, it was a pleasure meeting you on the 5th of New York, and Nick, great seeing you again. It was a gathering of wonderful people. In fact, I was impressed by the dedication of that young man from the Bronx who was working two jobs in order to take flying lessons. Now, on to my question, which is about the relationship between Captain and First Officer working together in tight quarters. It's a bit like two police officers in a squad car, but they usually pair off all the time. Pilots, on the other hand, keep changing partners. Captain Jeff, you said that you started as a captain on the Mad Dog, which means for a long time you were flying with first officers who knew the aircraft and its idiosyncrasies much better than you. Did that make it challenging to maintain your authority? How did you handle it? Captain Nick, even though we all know what a sweet guy you are, I could see how you would be an imposing figure to a young first officer. Are there steps you take to make sure your co-pilot is comfortable enough to speak up if he or she sees something wrong? And finally, Captain Dana, how will your experience as a first officer influence the way you handle your captain's authority? And before I go, a quick question. When exiting a plane, I always make a point of thanking the pilots for a nice flight, but I can never find the tip jar. Where do you normally put it? 
And the next question, which is really out of line because it's none of my business, but how do you divide the gratuities? Is it by rank or by who did the most actual flying? Well, anyway, this is Radio Roger saying over and out, and I await your responses. Well, obviously, the captain gets a majority of the tips, right? Oh, oh is that the way your company does? We're, <laughs> we're a lot more even-handed, Jeff. We just oh. put it in a big pile, and we spend it on beer. Well, that it would be the most fair way to do it, I think. Uh, it's kind of like the coffee fund. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> at, my, at my company, the FOs get all the tips because the captains make too much money. Uh, we're poor. We can't afford beer. So, so the question, um, we asked several questions there about, um, captain's authority. And he, uh, first, I think he started with, uh, me, uh, starting off on the uh, MD 88 and MD 90 as a captain, having never flown it as a co-pilot. So I'm flying with people and this is very true, especially in the, in the early years when I first started flying the airplane, um, most of the people that I was flying with had been on the airplane for many years and, uh, I don't, I don't think it had any effect at all on my authority because everybody that I flew with, you know, recognized the authority of my position, but it was much appreciated by me. And I think I expressed that, um, over and over again, that, uh, I appreciated the, the, uh, the experience that my first officers had and, um, you know, welcomed any suggestions that they had uh, as far as flying the airplane and operating the systems, et cetera. So it didn't, uh, I've never had an issue with somebody not respecting my authority. So that's my answer regarding that. Um, he mentioned something, Dana, uh, regarding you as well. And I don't remember exactly what that was. Do you remember he, how I handle the captain's authority and, and okay. how, how I navigate that yeah. issue? It, it It's, it's really a uh, pretty simple. You have to be a good chameleon because every person has a different personality. Now we have a standard way of, of accomplishing our, our jobs every day and that's you know standard operational procedures but even even with the standard standard operational procedures or sops uh we you know as individuals do things ever so slightly different even though we do it in a standard way and you know everybody has their pet peeves so as a first officer you have to kind of judge the the, the, the person you're flying with to see what you can do to help that crew uh be successful you know just as when you go up to the captain it's you know i talked about that earlier you have to do you you have to be successful in managing the crew concept and, and making sure everybody feels included in the crew so my my primary job is is really to support the captain um if they make a what i view as a uh, I wouldn't say a bad decision, but a decision that I, that I would think needs better consideration or maybe different uh, route of consideration. I, of course, will view my uh, uh, point of view and pre- present the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm saying this. And then, you know, give it to the captain to consider because, you know, you're really playing devil's advocate for the safety of, of the aircraft, the safety of the operation. Um, and so the captain can consider that and then when the captain makes a decision well that's his decision you know i always uh, i always tell the captains uh jeff i think you heard me say this i may or may not have said it to you but if you're going to kill me i'll knock you out and we'll talk about it later 
So uh, it, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, it it it, it really is never an issue. I, I don't question the captain's authority. Never have. Never will. Uh, I'm, but I'm a support person, and through good CRM and good uh, leadership as a first officer, I, I really work with the captain to make sure that we, we have a safe operation. As it should be. Yes. What do you think, Nick? Love that. Put a CRM about knocking the captain out. I think <laughs> <laughs> we could all learn something from that. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is an interesting thing, but it's surprisingly um, easy to accomplish because uh, the environment you're working in is a very professional environment with fairly constrained rules and regulations. And if one of you starts stepping outside of those, whether it's the first officer or the captain, it's usually very easy to pick up on. And um, we. Just like everyone else, we learn to we learn to interpret people's uh, uh, attitudes by body language, the way they speak, and what they say. Of course, and uh, if I find that um, perhaps I'm being a bit too relaxed about some procedures because they're I've done them a million times, and I'm perhaps paying a little bit of lip service to them, and my first officer looks askew at me. I'll go, oh, okay, you might have done this, not done this as many times. So, so why don't we do this, you know, in, in its, uh, be complete about it and do absolutely everything, uh, which is fine. And then that makes them feel a bit more comfortable. In other areas, uh, when an FO does uh, something that I think um, they've rather skipped over, uh, a briefing perhaps, or considering a procedure, then I won't pull them up, but I'll say, just look, just for my own benefit, I'm just going to uh, cover this bit of a, the briefing just to remind myself. So I won't try and point out something they've missed. I will rather say that I'd prefer to cover something myself just to refresh my own memory um, and deal with it that way. Uh, so uh, always that pains not to point out uh, bluntly uh, any omissions or errors. And I think both of us usually play that card at times it depends who you're flying with of course some uh, are a little more subtle about it than others um some communicate better than others and uh it, we all learn to accommodate that that's the part, part of the job and i think the more time you put into it the better you become of it but um you're right uh roger it's it's difficult when you are usually meeting new guys uh, very frequently and never having worked with them before. We rely on this framework of procedures to uh, know how to conduct ourselves. But around that framework, you build in a certain element of, well, let's get to know each other as much as we can. We're only in the air for a few hours. Uh, you know, some people are very forthcoming. Some people are very quiet. So you it depends. So you may find out a lot about someone in the first five minutes. You may spend days with someone and know <laughs> no more at the end of the trip than you did at the start. More but, than you uh, want to know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, you still, it doesn't matter that when you're actually doing your job, you are still very professional about um, the aspects that, you know, require you to uh, communicate properly. Um, and uh, uh, no first officer, luckily for me, has ever tried to knock me out yet, which probably means I'm doing my job okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm pleased about that. It just that. means you haven't flown with Dana yet. 
Yeah, I'm a little bit worried about that. <laughs> yeah, I think if Dana were to get into my f- flight deck, the first thing I'd do is hide the fire axe. <laughs> <laughs> no. 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 I say it jokingly, of course. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm always amazed at how many parallels there are between aviation and medicine because a lot of this all rings very true to me as well, even though I'm not always working with you know a new person or someone I haven't met before but there are people who rotate in and out especially for procedures and same thing we have framework of how things are done and we have a lot of stop gaps for or stops for safety you know you come to a point you stop you do this you talk about it and we do a lot of training within our our healthcare system to make sure that everyone is encouraged to speak up if there's something they don't feel comfortable with or if they notice something that's not quite right and to let everyone know that there's no retaliation there it's for the safety of what's going on in the patient you're taking care of. And it's, it's no different than aviation in that sense. So. And Nick, Absolutely. You- that, is that a relatively modern change in, uh, in medicine? Uh, yes. Uh, in the past, it hasn't always been that way, has it? No, I, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how relatively recent it's certainly been that way since I've been in medicine. Um, and I think we're getting better at it with every passing year um, because I think, you know, like anything else, there there's kind of an old school way of doing things where, nope, I'm in charge. This is how it's going to be done. And this is how we're going to do it versus no, we're all here as a, a team to make sure that everything gets done correctly. So. Yeah. And I certainly think as the new generations enter the industry, the better they're uh, learning how to communicate and the better they're picking up these techniques that allow them to get on very well with their colleagues, even though they may have only just met them. It, it's yep. it's it kind of an old school of, thing. becomes part of the culture over time. The culture yeah, changes. Exactly right. Yeah. And and we still, I, I'm old school, but I'm, I'm talking about people, captains when I was a first officer. So actually we're uh, 20 years on there. If they, those guys still around, they must be 110 years old. And what they're doing <laughs> on flight deck, I don't know. So hopefully we, to a lot of extent, have got over this problem. You make such a good point about uh, the fact that you've been, you, when you're do, you've done this for so many years, it's so easy to get, not complacent, but um, cavalier uh, with, with things and, and, uh, not considering the fact that the person you're flying with may not have much experience at all and may have come from a completely different world. And the training that they've just received is completely, uh, foreign to what you're doing and the way you're operating the airplane. I, I was, you know, reminded of that in the last couple of days of this trip, you know, flying with two brand new, you know, the uh, Chris uh, at six months. Well, the guy that I just started flying with today out of Dallas, he's been with the company for two months. And uh, wow. so, you know, two wow. very, very new people and new to Acme. And, uh, and, and uh, trust me when I say that when I fly the airplane, it's nothing like what they've just gone through training as far as to how to operate the airplane, as far the uh, as far as the different automation modes, et cetera, and so I'm sure it must be a shock to them to see this old codger, you know, flying this airplane like a 727. Um, and uh, so uh, it's that was a, a well made point, and I need to consider a little bit more, you know, my my CRM and explain maybe what I'm why I'm flying the airplane the way I am, and I, I try to do that. So, um, but well, I mean. Uh, in in reality, there's there's the schoolhouse, and then there's the reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we flew the airplane into some of these big airports, in you know, I, I can only speak for the United States because I don't, 
you know, don't fly international. So I, you know, I get a little taste here and there, like when I go to Chicago or, or New York, uh, we've flying with multiple uh, different airlines from all over the world. But even so, you know, they have their, and Captain Nick alluded to it earlier, you know, you're going into New York, you don't want to buck the wave too much because, well, you're going to end up with something you really don't want, you know, going around or, or whatever else. So, you know, if, if we flew the airplane as we are taught in the simulator, 180 knots, you know, it, I mean, uh, full flaps, landing gear down, and be fully established once you come down on the glide slope. Well, we're intercepting the glide slope at, you know, various altitudes, three, four, 5,000 feet in Atlanta, depending on which runway you're on. So if you've got a guy that's fully configured in the landing configuration, uh, coming down with, you know, guys that are doing what we all do is 180 knots to the market. That's what the air traffic control wants you to do, right? So you'd have uh, air traffic control coming out of there coming unglued and coming out of their seat through the, the radar screen because you're flying the, the airplane the way you're taught in the simulator. So that's part of the um, the headwinds that you face as a senior captain or even a, a captain uh, that has a lot of experience on this aircraft. Uh, you, you know how to fly it, generally speaking. Uh, you know, we have a few people make some mistakes out there, and we learn from mistakes, and that's uh, really, uh, really how we've uh, – come to where we are in this business you know it used to be there was no crm was captain spoke and that was it now we've come full circle where the uh, the fa and the ntsb really doesn't look at it as a captain first officer they think they view us as both equals what yeah what are you talking about believe, believe that not on my airplane yeah <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to decision making we're both held the equally responsible. Uh, shut up first officer all right yeah all right. Soon to be. But so, <laughs> anyways, that you know that's that that explains some of it. Yeah, that does. Also. Well, you know, great discussion, Roger. Uh, thanks for um, bringing up several salient points, um, and uh, I think I can speak for everyone that was at that meetup in New York City. It was a pleasure meeting you, and uh, hope to see you again uh, uh, on a future meetup and, uh, continue to listen, support the show and send in feedback. And if all of you want to do the same, you can do that by sending feedback to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. You can download this, uh, handy dandy, uh, app app that we have for the iPhone and for the, uh, Android. I'm trying to pull it up on my uh, phone right now. And for some reason, uh, it's trying to tell me that I need to install some kind of software. I don't want to do that right now. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, get the Airline Pilot Guy app uh, for your iOS device or your Android device. And you can learn about how to do that by heading over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. And uh, you, can, you can listen to the show. You can watch the video. You can send in feedback, all that from your app. Very handy. Um, and we also send out push notifications when we're about to record the show and when a new episode has been released, etc. So uh, check it out. It's free. And uh, you learn more about the show by heading over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. And we're on social media as well. And uh, Steph would like to, uh, maybe she wouldn't like to talk about this. But... <laughs> my, my app works. Episode 276. 
I was going, what, where is that coming from? <laughs> that was not I, part of my social media presentation. I thought I accidentally pushed a button somewhere. Thinking, what in the heck is that? Briefly interrupted. <laughs> but anyway, social media, if you would like to interact with us on those platforms, you can head over to Twitter. Um, our account is at APG Crew. Um, there's a post at the top that has all of our individual um, Twitter handles as well if you want to ask us a question individually but if you reach out to us there we can all respond to you um you can also find us on facebook www.facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and uh, there is information there usually about uh meetups and other things that we think are interesting or you might like to see so what about slack i think hillel will tell us about slack if you have that APG listeners, if you want to be part of our Slack team, please send an email address on Twitter to me, Hillel, H-I-1-1-E-1. Over on Slack, we plan events, we plan meetups, we talk about the episodes, we gather feedback. If you want to be part of the team, send me a tweet. See you there. Thank you, Hillel. He's been hiding in the bathroom the whole time in my room here. Yeah, it's a little awkward, but yeah, it is awkward. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, check out Slack; it's a great uh, uh, social platform, as well as Twitter and Facebook, and the again the website and and all of that. If you're uh, listening to us by downloading the show on iTunes, if you uh, have the opportunity or the time to uh, possibly uh, put in a review, uh, that'd be great, and that uh, helps other people doing searches for aviation podcasts to find ours. Uh, our community is great. Uh, you need to just just dive into it. You'll uh, be amazed at the wonderful people that are make up the uh, APG community. And again, uh, by following us on Twitter and uh, you know the the website, etc. It's a it's a it's an amazing thing. And I guess that means until next time, we wish you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Talons, Douglas. We'll see everybody next time. Good day. W-A-P-G Airline Pilot Guy and I have something to say. I have to go take a pee. <laughs> Shake hands with President Johnson. That's right. a little in the way to us. So while we do that, let me play something. A little interlude. Like a little little interlude while we all take a little break. Do you have like a, a little bottle? Do you have a yay or a nay? What's up with that?
listen to this stupid music? Can I stop music? Oh, no, way. <laughs> Can't we find something decent? Can't we do like what you did earlier, Nick? Shut up. Yeah. Shut up, whatever you name okay, it. Okay, shut up. <laughs> Anybody else get by this music? This is such an amateur show. Unbelievable. At least I can put some good music on. I feel like I'm what are you saying there. behind my back? We love you. I'm sorry, but I was going to pee on the floor here in my hotel room if I did. Don't you have an empty glass in front of you? Yeah, that's true. I have two. Everybody can see All they can see is from your, your bosom up. <laughs> so I could so. just turn off the audio and you wouldn't hear the, uh, yeah. <laughs>